and they're off. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, one, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Table Read podcast number. I counted them the other day, but now I forget. I think it was seven. <laughs> You do have a problem getting that high, don't you? I do. After six, it's just... Uh, <laughs> you run out of fingers on one hand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. I can understand six. It's one hand plus one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, so anyway, this is... Uh, we're old hands at this now, and uh, given the Speak old hands... Speak for yourself. We're a little shaky, in other words. <laughs> this is, I'm a virgin in this one. Ah, yes. We're all old hands, except we brought in fresh blood this, <laughs> I, this week. I have to say, this is a dung here. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be not the only person who doesn't act for a living. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chase acts for a living. Oh, do you? Yes, sir, oh, yeah. I, well, yes. that's great. I'll just continue to stay over here. <laughs> Originally, I was to be you know, you a guest on Dennis' podcast. You didn't think we you any support at all. <laughs> no, not at all. No, it's not. No, they go off doing their acting thing. <laughs> now we're going to improvise Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. I'm going to call Juliet. Juliet. <laughs> so I'm rapping all, the female, all the female parts. <laughs> <laughs> so who we've got here, so uh, uh, can't tell the players without a, a scorecard, or a program in this case. Uh, I'm Dennis Johnson. Uh, this podcast, uh, I make sure that it happens or not. Sometimes it's easier to make sure that it happens than it is to make sure that it's not. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go around to my left is uh, a familiar face. To those of you who have seen it, uh, Dylan Dillon. <laughs> How's it going? And uh, sitting across from me, our, our new uh, uh, participant this time, uh, Chase Bailey. The Bloody Virgin. The Bloody Virgin. And uh, to my right, the uh, established gentleman who one time we substituted Bridget for Duncan Watt. I'm happy to be substituted at any time. I'll be, you can introduce me as the reluctant Duncan, Duncan Watt. The reluctant. <laughs> the reluctant. Yeah. Um, yeah, one time, let's see, we've had uh, uh, Dill, Duncan, myself. We've had Pete join us, uh, another member of Dill's band, before we had... Um, throw, Dill's, me throw Me Down A Throw Me Down A Well. Throw Me Down A Well. That band. Oh, that you mean <laughs> that Throw Me Down I have so many bands, I'm always forgetting which one I'm actually talking about. Well, you know. <laughs> Write notes in the back of your hand to yourself. You know? yes. what, what, what instrument oh. do you play? I play bass. In bass. That, yeah. And sing. Stand-up bass, or...? Oh, yeah, it's a real stand-up bass. You're it, uh, standing in the good... Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. standing and the bass is in my hands. <laughs> <laughs> so I hold it like it's our wedding yeah. night. <laughs> so you're saying strings it's, it's a strap-on. Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay. I like to play with the G-string, you know. Oh, Lord. Oh, wow. <laughs> All those fun things. Yes, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> Oh, that's anyway. Master of transition. <laughs> Moving right along into the next uh, <laughs> pile of frivolity. Um, yeah, so we've got uh, uh, myself uh, as an actor. Everybody does a lot of stuff, but primarily. Uh, Dylan to my left, uh, musician and actor. Chase across from me, a filmmaker as a producer, director, and actor, writer as well. Uh, Duncan as a composer and... Uh, and voice actor that he doesn't like to admit it, but he really is. Well, I have one. He's got a great voice. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This is the one I do. A lot of practice at it. Right. Yeah, so a lot of creativity here, and we usually uh, uh, usually launch into diatribes or um, friendly discussions about such concrete uh, outlined things as truth and Love. The American way. And the American way. <laughs> <laughs> Super Which way is it? 
I used to love that show. Well, I'm always interested in what uh, is up. What are you going? What, what's happening with you these days? Yes, what's up? Uh, let's see. Uh, I've been working on um, uh, voiceovers for Hershey, uh, some industrial films for them, and uh, been doing that for a while now. A few a few times over. They like to do a lot of retakes too. So mm-hmm. one uh, one uh, particular item will get five or six studio visits and, uh, it's a lot easier when the studio's in your home you notice the, the blankets behind you Chase That's yeah, a, so you, I saw them the outline of them. so you're doing most of your work uh, directly from your house now right? yeah most of the time I do too except to go out for an occasional audition sure. like fortunately the Red Sox audition a couple of years ago that sure. I decided to leave the house for right. um, but uh, mostly uh, audio and video mm-hmm. stuff and um, yeah I'm interested just because uh, you know I have my own, my own studio. Um, You're the one in Portland, right? No, I'm actually not. You're probably thinking of Steve Drown up in there. No, I have okay. a I have a, a, a basically a project studio, a private studio. I work for uh, mostly video games and uh, some some film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, every yes. now and then I, I, I bring actors in to do and you're voices for where? games. I'm in uh, Durham. In Durham, oh, yeah. I have to say this: that Duncan did the uh, uh, orchestration. Uh, behind Gene's um, Sweet Forever. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, he composed yeah, fantastic. and conducted that. Sure, and actually I think, uh, I'm not sure if we may have done some work together. Did you, did you have something to do with, uh, is it Fight It Out? Yeah. Was, okay, Gene's, I think... He Gene, did a song for me. Right, he did that in my yeah, old Sensei studio. Sensei Hustle. Right, uh, Gene and I did that together in... Uh, in That's Mexico. where your name sounds familiar. Right. I couldn't remember where it was from. Right. It wasn't Crooked Lane, it was... No, no, no. Sensei Hustle. So I've been it. out for a great song. A couple yeah, of years yeah, yeah. in Providence, Rhode Island, and I'm back up now. So I'm uh, back up to Florida. So I can use your studio if I ever need it. You could. You could. For uh, a certain. Yeah, I mean, price. it's uh, it's really it's really set up for mixing and tracking. It's not really set up for a, a large oh, okay. band or anything like that. Okay, I don't need a large band. I okay. need a, you know. Uh, no forty piece ADR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm set up for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, these days the film industry and the uh, and whoops and the video game industry, the digital game industry are relatively similar on the audio side. Yeah, very different in the uh, production. Yeah, but the uh, audio is sort of similar. Yeah. Uh, my stuff's mostly non-linear, which is which is another discussion. But the thing I'm interested in is yeah. uh, since I bring. Um, you know, I usually bring people into my studio mm-hmm. to do like you've come in to work on a couple of games Many for me. Times. Um, how do you handle the producing? Duncan, those... Duncan produced uh, the great uh, improbability for me too. Oh, okay. He did all the engineering on that. <laughs> a couple of the voices. It's I'm like, not going to let you catch catching up. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, well. I... Uh, so, so how do you like the Hershey? So, how do you uh, how do how do the producers produce you in your house? Is this all over the phone or Skype or do you do video? Yeah, do, uh, Firebatch with Skype works really. So really it's all great. audio. With, with Jack, uh, the Jack yeah. uh, pilot, right? Right. Uh, mostly all audio, but I'm, I've got uh, all this video stuff that I, I put off editing because it's um, it's just hard. Oh, I'm like sorry. A lot, of, a lot of Gene stuff. A lot of Gene's. Uh, right. I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm not being clear. I meant. Okay. Um, do you you don't do a video uplink with the producers? Not video from like Hershey or whatever no. like that. Yeah. They don't need to see me. They just care. Well, that's one of the things we've been changing on the like in it. the games industry has been at making this video using uh, you know uh, Google Hangout or whatever like that. Yeah. You can just write on your iPad. You know, you and I could do a hangout with up to ten people, yep. and it's just a different vibe. I really like that. I like yeah. the idea of just being up. Seeing the people that are there, you know, you get that immediate uh, connection. See people's yeah. faces, and yeah. you yeah. can watch everyone's reaction as well. And then mm-hmm. of see mine. So, uh, well, I saw my granddaughter that way. Uh, yeah. I wasn't with a group, but uh, over uh, Facetime. Sure, and uh, right. it was great. 
Right. It's just yeah, yeah, it's interesting to, to <laughs> yeah. see it change. It's changing in this industry. It's interesting that you know. I think the the VO stuff has always been a little bit behind, though. You guys were using ISDN up until like yeah. the last last yeah. year, right? So. Well, they had that other program, Sound. <clears throat> Right. There's a. Uh, I'm no, sorry. I forget what the connection is. Anyway, they it's came in and source instead source connect instead yeah. of ISDN. You can <clears throat> use it. But that was twelve hundred bucks for the program at first. Jack uh, the Jack Pilot's uh, uh, free. And, right. Uh, yeah, and Skype's free. So right. Just need a. Yep. Yeah, works good. Works good. Really clear. I mm -hmm. ask the producers, and I can you know adjust uh, so they can hear me and they can hear the yeah. playback. First time I connected it though, I had one too many connections mm -hmm. so that whatever say they said was recorded on what it was doing. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh no. That's Fourteen instead yeah. of twelve connections. <laughs> right. And when you're done you just pack up all the files and send it to them, right? Uh, yeah. Or whatever the takes are. Yeah, yeah they usually they want to it's one of uh, I'm always fascinated with uh, people's uh, creative and, and you know production flows. Mm -hmm. Especially creative that adds a sort of a, a side Question to, to Dennis, just because of the tech of it, but uh, yeah, I'm always fascinated with people's creative process, you know. And uh, obviously, in VO, you run into a number of times you run into the the the, the lieutenant of the general of the president making the decisions, and you know, you go back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, I would much, of course. In a perfect world, all the stakeholders are on the screen. Yeah, but that won't happen. Well, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it does. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't happen in film normally. Yeah, it doesn't happen in film. The the, yeah. the the actual decision maker is you know two levels removed from the right. people that are on that conference call or in that conference meeting. Yeah. So it's it's. So you're always trying to please an invisible yeah force basically. and and sometimes you have a producer that knows that invisible force but sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. And you hedge towards the creative side rather than the demographic side or mm -hmm. you know the production cost side yeah. of a decision. And um, you know, I'd say 80% of the time you're wrong. So you don't find that pays off. You don't find coming up with an elegant a really elegant sort of creative solution. It's, in hard, it, it's impossible to do. Yeah. I mean, the gray area of making decisions in film production is impossible to do because you always want to hedge for you got a budget of X and with X you can only shoot let's give it a budget let's say for five million dollars we can shoot 40 days and in 40 days the director and the producers feel that'll give you enough time to do as much coverage to make the film as quality as possible but you ain't got $5 million. You right. only got 4.5. Where do you hedge on? Right. Quality of the actors, quality of the crew, mm. the number of days that you can shoot. So something has to give. Mm. And the producers have, you know, usually get stuck in a, in a position to where you go, oh, shit, where am I going to lose production value? Mm. And that's where you got to think about it. It's interesting mm. to, to, to see that. Um, I think, you know, coming in, uh, I, I, I haven't dealt with film. I just do little indie films every now and then uh, now, but for mm. many years, back before, really uh, long enough ago before, where it was, we were past beta tapes, but just in the beginning of QuickTime, sort mm. of, you know, uh, composers using QuickTime to, uh, to shoot to or to write to. But, um, yeah, it, it, you know, coming in, obviously, you, know, you get used to things being shot out of order and, and things going through some sort of, uh, you know, generation. But I've noticed now, uh, certainly dealing with younger indie film people, that there's there really is no ever so, uh, sort of picture lock. There's, there's a constant 
constant editing, constant editing, constant editing, constant editing. It's become a very different process, I think, than than maybe it had been before. Do you think I'm uh, somewhat accurate? It, it, boy, this is a tough this is a tough discussion. Uh, I work with a lot of. Um, uh, no or low budget films, indie films that are shot in the Portsmouth Seacoast area. Uh, I've done five in the last couple of years. Either as an actor, as a producer, as a director, or whatever. And all of them are different. There's always a one off. Uh, there's one famous uh, director, writer here in the Seacoast that has no, uh, no flow. There is no flow in his process at all. And it's always. Uh, he has he loses crew on a daily basis. They just quit. They're so frustrated. But he always makes a good film. Sure, uh, sure. I mean, in the end, the art has. I, to I, sh- I shouldn't say good, but yeah. I mean as as good as he can make. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, he he just does everything by the seat of his pants, mm-hmm. and he's good at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, but to do anything that is to me watchable. Um, it has to have some flow to it. Sure. Uh, and uh, it, there has to be a control. Uh, I don't work without a good producer involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if I you know, was asked to, to be an actor in a film that was shot uh, late last year sure. called Figments of a Father, and, uh, and the producer was Sue Tinkham, and she had worked with me in three other films that I'd shot over the last 10 years, and she's a phenomenal producer. Uh, I just wouldn't have... It, accepted that role with a new director, first-time writer-director, Kyle Turgeon out of um, uh, Peterborough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't have done that unless Sue was involved. Right. Otherwise, I don't want to go through five, it was five shooting days for me, and I wouldn't have wanted to go through five shooting days of hell. Right. And then I'm traveling to <clears throat> the White Mountains and to Plymouth and to Peterborough for the, for locations, the locations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah. I wouldn't have done it. And you get your stipend of uh, $100 a day. Yeah, right, of course. (laughs) Try to cover your gas, right? Right. Well, it's it's an interesting thing. I think it comes down to, uh, you know, forever ago. I'm old enough to to talk about, you know, uh, cutting tape, right? You know, you you, you can't cut a piece of 24-track tape or 16-track tape audio tape into a thousand billion pieces. You can only cut it a certain number of times or and it goes to hell. So, and in today's, you know... Uh, Control Z, Apple Z, uh, you know, era. I mean, everything you do can be done, you know, comp together, reorganized. Now, I guess sometimes you get these wonderful stream of consciousness kind of things out of that. I think the freedom to continually redo and undo and, and edit and well, Final time. Cut is an, is an yeah. easy tool to use. It's harder now right. with version ten, but uh, under version seven, it was such an easy tool to use. I haven't learned very well version ten, but. Um, uh, it's so easy to do. I mean, y- you just uh, go in and color code all the great takes, right. and then you just put them together. Right. And sometimes you want to shift scene one to scene fourteen. You know, right. it doesn't. And matter. it's so simple. Right? Yeah, it is. And I think the thing is that uh, you know, certainly the younger people that I've worked with um, come in rather than coming from shooting a bunch of uh, visuals and then adding things to it, like like ADR or like uh, or I'm thinking about from the composer's point of view, mm-hmm. music. Right, I come in for the post-music video thing where they, you're going to start with this piece of music that they love. They're going to put a bunch of visuals to. So the process then to make a film is different where you're cutting to temp or something 
you know, and so I'm getting this thing that's that's barely done, that's being cut to a piece of temp. And number one, the temp is just one two three four one two three four one two three four one two three four one two three four. It's not even like film score temp. It's it's like a song kind of piece, you know. And so it's very very it's it's interesting to look at a younger person and say this. Let's take a look at this scene. You know, let's look at this scene from Aliens or something. Right. This battle scene. See how all the music will, like, you know, note it, it calls out all these different things and it changes and it follows the different emotions. There's some you great composers that, out there. Yeah, but you do that after the scene is done. And well, you mentioned earlier in your uh, <coughs> earlier when you uh, you were talking about this, you mentioned picture lock. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand what picture lock is. Right, and uh, and you got to get to a point where you just say, "I'm finished fucking editing." Well, and, think, you, and yeah. you you go, "Okay, now I can give it to sound. Now I can give it to music, and they can do their tricks." It depends but, on which but one. But the composer, alone, though, right? It's hard to leave alone, uh, especially if they're in total control. If they're the writer, director, editor. I mean, the writer and editor. Uh, the the editor should never be the writer director. Just should not be. I think that's a cardinal rule in film. Mm. Do not edit what you have just shot because you need that other eye, those other eyes to look at it. Yeah. I think um, it depends on what you want out of the composer. I think if you're doing if there's this uh, take like the things people know like the one of the the shooting scenes in uh, in the Matrix. I mean, this is basically a music video come to life. Mm-hmm. It's set to a beat. The rhythm, the tempo of the visuals is all based on that. Mm-hmm. Then fine, you know, that that's a piece that you can pre-write or write to, to to that concept. And you can cut the picture to that. But if you if you use an example, if you want the soundtrack to call all these things out into morph and... But, I, you know, I disagree. I think, I think you can't put things into concrete. Sure. Until, you know, you can't set some things, whether it's a beat or whatever, mm-hmm. until you've got the whole concept put together. Sure. Until you do that first rough cut. So you know that the timings and the beats, as, sure, you, right. as you call them, are there. Yeah. And then the music can be laid in to enhance them. Right. Or to not detract from them. That's the other thing, is what role do you want it to play? The thing that's interesting to me is actually looking at a young director and saying... Listen to what. What do you want the music? Do you want the music to to reflect the emotions of the audience? Do you want to reflect what's going on on screen? Do you want to support it? Do you want to call out the characters? You know, do you want to? No, and 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 many young directors just sort of looking at it like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like like the whole thing is because if they've so gone removed, to film school, if they've gone well, to film school, they, they should, understand yeah. that. But most of the young directors today pick up an iPhone and they shoot a five-minute film. That's what I mean. I mean, I, we're New Hampshire Film Festival is in October, and I'm part yeah. of the screening committee. Mm-hmm. And I've already looked at, well, I'm going to say 50 submissions so far. I mean, I only uh, do the 30-minute films and less. Sure. And, um, well, lucky you, so you get a thousand of them. <laughs> oh, no, there's 5,000 films. Oh, really? Yeah. I was but there's this committee of 15 people, so sure. you know you go through... Uh, and I don't usually look at documentaries. I, I look at the narrative films. Um, and uh, it's it's amazing. There's so many directors today that have no idea about film, never right. studied it. And, uh, and they pick up their iPhone and they're filming us right now. Mm-hmm. They don't, well, obviously there's thousands of things you could do wrong. Right. Lighting is probably the number one. Mm-hmm. They don't yeah, know right. how to light. Lighting, sound, <laughs> color. Right. But to turn it positive. Colors later. Yeah. Colors yeah. in yeah. post. Yeah, that's true. 
to be to turn it positive, I mean, I don't mean to seem negative. I guess what I'm saying is I've always liked to see everything I work on as a collaboration. So I want to look at, like, using a game situation, I want to look at a, a young team that's making a game and saying, let me throw all these new tools at you, you know? Dialogue. These are all the things we can do with dialogue, and don't worry about it. If we do it this way, you don't have to localize it. I always want to, you know, and that's the, the fun thing for me is to work with the, even though, I, like I said, I don't do that much film now, uh, basically because I, I have a little trouble getting my mind around the process. It mm -hmm. used to sort of make sense, and I, I have trouble dealing with two different processes at the same time, but I liked, I'd like to, uh, I had this experience recently with a, with a director where I said, you know, you can finish this and turn it over to me. And he'll say, well, how will you know, you know, where to drop the beats? And I go, I, I actually believe I have software for it, and I can, I can count it out, you know? Mm -hmm. The idea was almost alien to him that, that the composer could go to this locked-up situation visually and then hit it so that the beats land right he's so used to the idea that you have to cut the all the visuals onto the beats of the music mm -hmm. you're going mm -hmm. but what happens if the music could follow you just cut it make it feel natural and and it's great yeah. i i love that i mean it's a, a really interesting well you know what is uh, i i happen to <clears throat> i happen to have done a 24 minute film with gene as the as the composer mm -hmm. And uh, I, he did do that in Port, Portland. Yeah, with that someone I've forgotten. Is that with the oboe? Steve Drone. Yeah, yeah. There with was the an oboe. oboe involved. Oh goodness! Uh, but but yeah, uh, but he went into the room, uh, and uh, the Sensi Hustle was the one I had a problem with him on. Sure. But uh, but when he went into the room, we had spent. Probably a month, month and a half, maybe even two months, understanding what the vision was. Right. So he knew what the vision was, and and I he went to Portland, got three or four musicians, maybe five or six musicians. Oh, I, I, I was don't there. Remember. No, he had uh, there were twelve at one point. Twelve at one point. String players, yeah. And yeah, and uh, and so it was when he came out after five days, four or five days, it was perfect. Hmm. It was exactly what was needed. Right. And when I gave him the picture lock, I said, here's the DVD. And he went up there, and five or six days later, he gave me something that matched that 24-minute film. Oh, goodness. It's and it was just, and it worked. You know, it's like, as 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 the director, writer on that one, I wasn't the editor. As a, I never would be a good. Yeah, good. Okay. All right. But... Uh, you learn your mistakes, <laughs> but as as a writer director, I'm sitting there with the two producers that I have, mm. and we all just went fuck. Yeah. You know, it was one of those with Sensi Hustle. It took look like three times. The Sensi Hustle thing was weird. I, I can tell you from the other side, it was interesting. <laughs> it was interesting, uh, if I remember it correctly. It was an interesting process for Genius because I want to write this song. You know, kind of. I want to kind of go like, you kind of laid down sort of this vocal beat you know it's very very free and I okay well I put down this track I played the I don't play I played the drums on the drum machine you know so yeah, it's not yeah. kind of different we just made this track and we're saying well, what's this for you know and he's like well it's gonna be this, this martial arts thing kind of you know but don't worry about that you know so we just did it yeah it was right? like, you know it's like the first uh, time he came back with music for me, it was more like Jackie Chan. And I that's exactly it. It was yeah. very. Uh, I didn't want I, that. I'm, yeah, I mean, like when discussing it with him, <laughs> it was like, 
for me, the, the questions that I have, for, for especially if I'm producing a piece of music, are colorful, is it monochrome, mm-hmm. is it natural, is it you know, organic, or is it, uh, is it hyper-real? You know, what are we trying to do here? Is this something you want to dance to? Is this something... And it's interesting, I, Gene and I did a, a number of things together. Yeah. And I remember uh, back then, Gene and I actually come from a, a very different ends of how you get to a, a wonderful yeah. thing. Gene's a phenomenal musician and oh. a, pheno- a phenomenal artist. And I learned a tremendous amount from Gene by saying things like, he'd be like, yeah, you need to use like a sound like in, you know, whatever, uh, uh, this Whitney Houston song. I'm like, that's like... No, it's not old enough to be retro. It's not new enough. It's just bad. It sounds like a wedding band. He's like, you can't, you just got to go with it. And I would go with it. And most of the time, he wasn't right. <laughs> and then it came around and he'd go, you know, we got to get rid of that sound. But he would use it and he would do these iterations and iterations and try it different. We did, we did three uh, with Sensei Hustle. Like, yeah. I yeah. One of the last times, I think you maybe even been at lunch with us. We were at the 100 Club having oysters or something. And it was like, <laughs> I'm sitting there and I go, Gene, I just don't like it. Yeah. And he goes, can you give me an example? And I said, I'll give you a perfect example. It was uh, Lucy Liu, Uma Thurman fight, and Kill yeah. Bill 1. Yeah. I said, just think about that. It had that yeah. that uh, deer, what is that deer thing called? The one uh, that fills with water and does click, 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 click. Yeah. Goes back up. Yeah. Click, 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 click. It's and like they do that yeah, fight right. there going yeah, on. Right. I said the music that was behind that with uh, Tarantino was perfect. And he came up with a better song than Tarantino did. Right. right. I don't well, know. I remember that process that, for Gene, and he was like, I'm not sure what Chase is driving at. And then he right. listened to the thing, and he goes, oh, okay, I know how to do that. Oh, it's it easy. Excellent. Everything was always easy. I still listen. Easy. It's on my iPod. Sensei Hustle is yeah. on my iPod. Yeah. I like it so much. Yeah. Well, you know, to go back to uh, recording for uh, Crooked Lane, um, Gene doing the score for that, uh, he asked me to uh, to be his assistant. So I got to sit with his arranger and with the engineer, and through the four of us, it was just kind of like bombard Gene with, you know, ideas and concepts. And he, But he brought in, he said to me, he said, uh, you know, I bet Chase thinks that we're going to do this with all pre-recorded music. But he said, I'm going to bring in a lot of Well, people. no, there and was gonna, one, there was one song in there which was pre-recorded. <laughs> yeah, he did use the, he did. And, and, and when I first saw it, that was my only comment to him. I don't know if I like that. Yeah, it was when it. the two girls are leaving the flower shop, or not, uh, the, the framing shop. Right. And it was... Uh, I think Carrie is saying He was that. trying to justify it as playing on their radio or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. And it took me a couple of times to walk through that scene with that music before I finally before said, yeah. comfortable with it. Yeah, yeah. 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 I and I'm glad it's there now. Yeah. It was a wonderful process. It was like 20 hours straight in the studio that we spent going in there, and they had all these musicians running around. And Gene was confiding to me and saying, you know, he said... He, he said, this is probably going to drive them crazy because I'm going to ask him to do stuff that well, they're not used to people. That's the thing. My experience where <laughs> no time, team. play different rhythm, play different yeah. keys. Mm-hmm. My, yeah. my experience is, see now, there's an example right there. For me, when we were working with Gene, like I said, on a number of different things, um, I actually did three different versions of the Sensei Hustle with it. I'm not sure whatever went in the, I'm not sure if it's the one that went in or not. But for me, I, I, remember, play it. I remember going, <laughs> you, uh, I remember going yeah, back and sure. saying, why don't we just get Chase on the phone? But no, that wouldn't have worked. Or like, can we just <laughs> talk about like what it is we're trying to? Because I get the vibe that I'm you know, one, kind of missing. I, I, I'm one know? of these filmmakers. I'm one of these filmmakers that say, "Okay, your job is sound. Hmm. 
You know what I want. Now go do it. Oh no, but that's, don't interrupt. No, but no, no, but that was it. That was that thing where you're thinking. You do. You get bogged down in all that shit. Where I see, if I had that original discussion with you, I would know what it is that you're trying to do. Do it. Knock it out. Send it in. That kind of thing. I'm. That's how I work. And it was interesting working with Gene, where he's the other guy. He's like, I'm just going to do this, and we'll see if he likes. it. Mm-hmm. And we'll do this. I don't think. Hey, Gene's all about yeah. all about to uh, feed. Do, do, know, do, feed do, do the listeners of this podcast know who Gene is? Uh, we're talking about Gene McDaniel's, our yes. all mutual uh, good friend and um, fellow uh, creative artist on a lot of levels. Who also the uh, the voice of NASA's League of Legends, which is doing 1.2 billion hours of gameplay a month right now. He is really? one of the original, uh, yeah. one of the things, he is probably more famous worldwide for that than <laughs> he is, is than 100 Pounds of Clay in 1964 or any, or uh, writing, that's the And that only took him an hour. making <laughs> love to you. I couldn't believe it. I'm, I had known him for forever. I'm like, what songs are you in that I know? He's like, you know 100 Pounds of Clay? I'm like, no. Nope. No, before you get this song with Roberta Flack I go does it go hmm, that's the time he, then he starts of course Gene's voice yeah. <laughs> he yeah. starts singing it Gene's a an imposingly tall and very good looking uh, elderly uh, African American man who knows how to turn it on yeah oh my goodness he uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story about Gene since we're going to throw Gene's stories I don't yeah, think Gene's, Gene's, one, Gene's so always with us Gene's so. going to the studio and, and work in my studio uh, he'd, he'd hire me to do projects like yours um, because he would need this and then he'd take it and go to somewhere else and bring different musicians in and we wrote a couple of things together and all that but he, he shows up it's a beautiful summer day and uh, my wife at the time had this place in Exeter and she's out you know it's morning you know late morning and she's raking the lawn right and it, she's a pretty discerning type you know, not easily impressed, right? This motorcycle, right? And it's a black, like, you know, Japanese crotch rocket from whatever. Pulls in. I know it's Gene only because I knew it was time for him to show up. So I stick my head out of the studio, which is in the garage, right? Beautiful sunny day. It's like you can hear the whole world just slows down into slow motion. I'm like, that's jeans? Like full black leathers yeah. with red stripes. No one can pull this shit off. You would look, If I were wearing this, you would be like, oh, geez, that is the stupidest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Pulls it off you. Takes this, you know, just jet black helmet off slowly in slow motion. Places it on the thing, you know, gets off the thing. My wife is just, she's like, re- sl- stops raking and it's just... Daring. <laughs> it's so attractive, right? I'm much older than me. And I remember going, Hey, Gene! And he just looks sort of like, who looks at me and goes, just kind of puts his hand up like, just a sec. And he walks slowly over to my wife. And he's like, Hey, Lynn, how you doing? Right? She like, hadn't met him before? Oh, she'd met him, but you were getting off a motorcycle, like, you know, in the beautiful... It was, it's one of those things, a very imposing guy. He had the costume, he had the setting. No yeah, one can pull this prop. off. I mean, he looks... He was way over... Yeah, but he's, he's so 
handsome so, and smooth that, and relaxed and smooth and relaxed yeah. that you can't be intimidated by. Well, that's the thing. I forget. It's <laughs> <laughs> true, and he was. It was really important to him, you know, that he always felt I'm here on Earth to serve people. And when you approach other people that way, which yeah. is, is real tough, I can't do it. But yeah. but Gene did that, and that mm -hmm. was uh, that was showed. Well, he was smart. He could yeah. see the scene too, so he, oh, he yeah, wasn't right, causing right, me. He was just giving smart. me a hard time at the same time. He knew what's going on, right? <laughs> and then, of course, at that point, everyone became self-aware. At which point, you know, it got to be pretty funny. But uh, yeah, who can pull that shit up? No one I know. <laughs> yeah, he had, he had some of the, the, the largest doses of charisma in anybody that I ever met. Oh, my gosh. Sweet. You know, with that effort, just beautiful. Yeah. So there you go, a, a Gene story for the, uh, for the table. <laughs> so, yeah, we remember Gene. He uh, left us almost two years ago now. It seems hard to believe. God, it has been, been two years, hasn't it? Yeah, July. End of July. But he would have been here for these. He'd have loved this. Wish we'd have... Uh, damn, why didn't you think of this sooner? <laughs> oh, was this my idea? I'm going to blame Duncan. All the political uh, stuff we did a couple of weeks ago, I, I'm it's in, his fault. It's I'm, in, uh, I'm in pre-production for a podcast of my own, and early on, Dennis was talking about doing something, and I remember saying, you know, you should consider this, because you do these table reads, and I knew had a bunch of scripts. Yeah. And and it, it, it's an easy sort of thing. theater, obviously, or film. You sit down and you read the script together, first right. thing. So. And, uh, I, you know, I had never done uh, any... Uh, the podcast that I'm putting together would require a relatively uh, well-known guest, so it needs to be... I would like to handle it seriously and, and professionally. I'm going to do it in live in front of an audience. So, so we're I not serious to, and professional, huh? No, what I meant was... I thought it would be great if we started with something that was a little more casual yeah. and required less uh, engineering and, well, I like and cooperation. Because know? putting on, uh, doing films, you have to plan them precisely. Shows, music, that's sure. all very, very specific. Sure. Hard work for what you call on your, your past, your experience to all draw and focus, hopefully at that one time, like a like a, a welding torch, you know, that you're going you're gonna to carve your... Right. Yeah, and you're, you're, you're hoping that's that's the case. but uh, It's all hard to do. I mean, uh, pre-production is such a, a necessary, you know, uh, item in the flow, the process, yeah. that a lot of people don't recognize. A lot of people don't understand pre-production. And it's necessary whether you're doing a, a, a theatrical play or uh, an audio production. Uh, yeah, it's bringing the whole team together in a cohesive unit with a common vision that will last through the production process. Which is probably the most important role of the director, is to unify those elements. You can't make the actors better. You can help them express themselves better. You can't rewrite the play. You can, but you can... Uh, um, in the film, you can rewrite it. Yeah. In the film, you can rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> if it's your film, you can rewrite it. No, if you bought the rights to the script... Well, there you go. You know, if you buy the script for the screenwriter... <laughs> Fuck them at the end of the day. I mean, if it's yeah. if it's bought and you got the film rights for it, you know, we'll change it. I've never worked with a good director that doesn't change the script. Yeah, I always thought as a director years ago when I was doing uh, in theater, you can't some some theater out in in, yeah. uh, in uh, L.A. Yeah, I really wanted to change part of the as a director part of the writing, and I got hell from the from the writer. It was yes. turned into a big brouhaha over wait, you can't do that. So wait, hey, I'm the director. I'm fashioning this thing. Don't tell yeah. me what I have to stick on here but yeah different directors have uh, or uh, writers have different different rights in film though you pretty much then uh, 
the rider gets kicked out. Like, yeah, once once ninety percent of the time, and not all the time. If you're a big rider like Christopher McCary or somebody like that, you know they have a lot of input. But I'm having a brain fart right now. Uh, no, I just did that a minute ago too. You know, I just I'm having a brain fart now. One of my favorite writers, and I, you know, uh, and I'm having a brain fart being John Malkovich, uh, Char- uh, Charlie. Okay, we won't edit this. Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman. Jesus Christ. Charlie Kaufman. Um, <laughs> it's one of the best writers out there now. He's so respected. They won't. You know, he will be on set and he will work with the director if <coughs> lines have to be changed. But most of the time, the screenwriter is not allowed on the set. Mm. And the director will take over. And yeah. if he needs to change a couple of lines, he'll do it. Do you feel like that's because uh, that helps it be, that helps the product with a unified vision? Where the vision doesn't get split between three or four creatives? No, it's, it's, it's simply because, and here's the thing that, that people have a hard time understanding in film is I wrote this script and it's my baby. It's it's just the way it's got to be. But when you hand that off to the director hmm. and the director buys into the vision, it becomes his vision. The screenwriter's vision is no longer there. That's why right. I read, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I read so many scripts, it's pathetic. And the advice I give to young screenwriters is, okay, quit putting in cuts, quit putting in so much action, quit putting in this. You're just going to piss off producers and directors that read your script because they're thinking you're telling them what they're going to do, mm. and right. they don't like that. The DJs in the end, but you're the logic to that. Again, I'm talking from the composer's point of view, but the logic is you're not making a script; you're making a film, mm-hmm. and the script, I believe. If I'm guessing correctly, in your case, would be a structure in which you're it's hanging. It's a skeleton. Film. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not the film. It's not the film. You no, know, it's not the well, muscles like and the. George Bernard Shaw used to be really specific about his stage directions on his plays to the point of saying that a character's eyes would dilate. You know, now you couldn't even see that from the from the audience. But he would uh, he'd go into it in that detail. And but I mean, if you're a, a lot of a, you a lot of theater, the, the, uh, you know, uh, playwrights, uh, right. they do tell you. Uh, um, I'm having another brain fart. The kind of detail that yeah. uh, that they they feel. You mean, they, you mean screenwriters as well? Well, screenwriters. Some screenwriters, I would say, ten percent of today's top level screenwriters get away with telling the director what they'd like to see. Mm-hmm. The director, at the end of the day, has the final thing. Once per, the, the first day of production, director is in charge. Right. Screenwriter is not allowed to say a word. Um, well, uh, yeah, uh, theater. As I should tell my actors, theater is not a democracy. You need uh, uh, an autocratic situation mm-hmm. to have one vision. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you got problems. Even if oh, the two so visions many. get along really good, it still muddies it. So many general dis- So many disciplines all at one time. Mm-hmm. You know, got to yeah. It's got to got to have one uh, one decision maker at the end. But the screenwriter in in film gets fucked ninety nine point nine percent of the time. Defining fucked meaning that they wrote this vision and the vision will be changed. They wrote this scene and at the end of the day, the editor takes it out. Uh, John Malkovich used to tell me. I, luckily, I got to work for John Malkovich for like five six years. Oh, okay. and so I did a lot of films with him. And John Malkovich always said, "There's the film you write, there's the film you shoot, and there's the film that." the public sees and there are three different entities and so the director has that middle part and they don't want the screenwriter over their shoulder they've already read the screenplay they've got their vision and they're going to put it 
let's call it on paper. They're going to put it on celluloid. And that's what they do. And the producer is behind them supporting the director. They've all worked on this together. Uh, And the screenwriter is nowhere to be found. They will not allow them on set. The screenwriter will go, no, God, I wanted that guy to yeah. be tall. I wanted that guy to be short. I wanted that woman to be Throw him out of and you know, <laughs> I can see how that would yeah. really side uh, derail a lot of work. Yeah, it, would, yeah. it, would, it would derail a lot of the, yeah. the, the, the production. Most good screenwriters, once they sell their, their, their script, they go off and work on the next one. I would imagine after they've been through it a couple of times, yep, they yep. know what the plan is. Yep, yep. They understand how yep. to leverage that to make yep. them, you know... Well, well as you uh, as you work down from that though, uh, to where you have more complete control and usually a smaller budget of a particular film, to the point of where you don't have to, uh, um, it doesn't have to be that um, regimented. I guess is is the word that I was looking. For. You know, it's, it's Casavetes, for instance. You know, yeah, get get my buddies and go out and, and apparently, you know, and, or or. Or uh, uh, Orson Welles shooting Macbeth, where he's making other films in order to get the money to make the thing. Mm-hmm. It takes him seven years. If you look at it carefully, the characters look different. Well, we're probably one of the biggest ones is Apocalypse Now. I mean, what he had to uh, go through to oh, get that yeah. film done, it was all his own money. Because the studios didn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, He had to do it all on his own. Millions of dollars of his own money he spent. Uh, if you... Most of the screenwriters, directors, writers that are shooting their own stuff in Portsmouth, they are getting no outside money. It's all from friends and family and yeah. things like that. And they're shooting, uh, they're shooting. Uh, oh, let's think of the last one I did. Um, well, Figments of Father. They went on Indiegogo and raised, mm-hmm. I think, $5,000. We shot for five days mm-hmm. with a crew of probably 20, 25. Oh, really? And uh, nobody got any money. But, you know, it was for the love of things. A lot of times it's a new gaffer, it's a new DP, right. things like that, and they want the experience. Yeah. And so you can get those guys, but, you know, you're not going to get the best quality. Is there any, uh, just, to, and again, just give me one of these if I'm being depressing. I don't mean to be depressing. We'll stop it. Hopefully I'm not. We're not being depressing. No, Realistic. I, well, let me ask the question. <laughs> is it possible? Yeah, wait. He, he is, there any way, yeah, is there any way for a film, you know, for a $50,000 film, is there any way for that to generate that money back at all in today's day and age? Is this all just art, for art's sake? 90% of it, maybe even 95% of it. I mean, a $50,000 film, uh, Open Water is a $50,000 film, for example, that was picked up by someone somewhere uh, and probably did $5 million at the box office. But the way I understood it was was that the director, producer, and they did shoot in New England, I believe it was, $50,000, horrible film to watch, but well-produced for $50,000. Horrible to watch, but well Well, it's about two people (laughs) that are left uh, on a scuba diving trip, and they've left. And they're out there by themselves, and oh, Sarks okay. are sure. Yeah. So horrible in terms of putting yourself in their place. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to watch for me, but it was well done. I watched it a couple of different times. But they did it for $50,000. I think the studios picked it up. 
a, a studio, probably a Lionsgate or something like that, probably picked it up for them for maybe a hundred thousand dollars. So the the producers, directors got fifty thousand dollars and went away and goes, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the movie made fifty million dollars in box <laughs> office. <laughs> so be, and then outlier, nothing, yeah. no, none of the back end came to those kids. Is that there did any it. deal possible in that situation where they can say, okay, we'll sell Not it today. to you, but I don't want to keep Not something. Today. I want to keep ten percent. Well, that's I'll license it to you. Where I was going, I noticed you know this, Dennis. We. Just just as that being out there as part of the uh, as part of the podcast. That's part of the explanation, yeah. Of yeah. course I knew. <laughs> <laughs> From the musician's point of view, there there was a time where the recording would generate its own uh, make its own gravy. Mm -hmm. uh, you could put ten thousand dollars into a recording. Uh, make a thousand copies and and make ten thousand dollars back. Would you sell it. it to radio stations? Oh or no! What? At the time, you'd sell CDs to your fans, or or even on early on, you'd sell yeah. CDs online or like in this. record stores. You right. know, the New England area would be a self-sustaining. And what you could do is, as a, as a young band, you could make shitty recordings and play a bunch of shows, get your fan base up to somewhere between two or three thousand, and then maybe ten thousand people between the top of I'm using New England as an example, but uh, mm -hmm. top of Maine down to, say, New York City. Then, a label could come along, basically support the band for six months, give them some money to record. The band comes out maybe, you know, 80, 100 grand in, in the hole, but they're making $1,000 a night on the shows. You know, so even if the record totally stiffed, which, it, you know, you would usually sell, if you have 10,000 fans, mm -hmm. you're usually going to sell somewhere between eight and... 15,000 copies, at 15 bucks a pop, you might be pulling five bucks home. You can see the math is doable. So then there was that middle range, which could sustain a group of, say, four musicians for five or six years until they either just never had it or became uh, visible enough to be picked up by one of the major labels. And then they go into their own nightmare of major labels. But the yeah. point is that it, there, there was always a way of making money along the way. And then what drove me out of the music business was when that middle section, when uh, piracy came along. I'm not going to go pro or negative piracy. The point is that Oy, you better be pro piracy. When it, when, when it happened, <laughs> it made it so that the little guys, the, the, the 18 to 20 year olds, could still go out and five guys in a van and drive to Nebraska and play for 75 bucks and buy beer. This is before the gas crisis. And then the people who were successful in the major labels could still, you're always going to sell a Britney Spears. But that middle range, musicians over the age of 35, yeah. who were not interested in being on the road for 300 days a year, would just record. There was It took away the ability to record something and then just sell 10,000 copies. That middle range was limited. What I'm not even complaining. I think the thing that was sad about it was there was a lot of beautiful art in mm. that range. Mm -hmm that's lost. At this point, that game is wealthy people's children who just don't need to make money, who can drop, a, you know, twenty or $30,000 into a recording and make it for art's sake. And those people make some phenomenal art. Um, people who, uh, who have leveraged it so that the material they can make right out of their own house has potential, like EDM, like electronic dance music, which you can make in your bedroom. You don't need to record, a, you know, five or six musicians jamming ever. You know, it's always just all in the box, all inside your computer. You make it on an iMac. Sounds like that's like open water would be an example, sort of maybe analogy of that analog where 
it's it wasn't this amazingly difficult filming process with 15 different locations and all that. They leveraged the idea that you have two people stuck in the middle of the ocean <laughs> to make it so you really didn't have to spend well, that much money. Uh, there's another one, another good example that a lot of indie producers bring up is Blair Witch Project. Mm. Right, exactly. And, and that, right. that, that are two fringe examples right. of what can go right or what can be lucky. Uh, Those are really concept-driven, though. If you come up with the idea where you can create suspense and make the audience scared and you only have a couple actors and no basic set, you know, you're stuck in the middle of the woods, which is scary, obviously good choice. Well, if I mean, you can do that, camera. You're, you're, you've pretty much made a hit even before you shoot it. Well, yeah, you but give the there's, there's, the camera, there's, yeah. there's a thousand of them a day that are being produced, right. exactly like those two examples, right. and the quality is just not there. Yeah. When you say the quality well, it was, isn't, it was well done. isn't no, there, no, no, no. That, that's that analog to what I was saying. Is you're leaving a lot of art on the table. Uh, you and I right now could say we're going to make an acoustic guitar duo. No, and we're, can't. And, right? <laughs> no, I can't play. I can't play guitar either. Play this. <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna vibe this certain kind of Latin kind of thing, and we're gonna put it to a dance groove, and we could probably figure out a way to leverage a way where you don't have to play that many shows, and you can do a couple of you know videos and da 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 da. But the point I'm making is that those great examples of getting. 15 people together in a studio and, and, and making a beautiful, like the Elvis Costello and uh, Burt Backrack album comes along, you know, as an example to me. Um, this is just this phenomenal piece of art that you just can't make with one person. Mm -hmm. You can't make inside an, an iMac. You mean Paul McCartney couldn't do it by himself? The thing is that mm -hmm. now, you, of course, you can still be that middle range musician as long as you're willing to musically shoot a film with two people stuck in the middle of the water. But that artist seems to be gone, and I guess I'm reaching to see is that sim I, is that a similar situation? Do you really have to already have? Is it that old Steve Martin joke? I'll tell you how to make a million bucks first. First, you get a million bucks. Give me bucks. a million bucks. Right? <laughs> um, right. um, uh, I think they're stuck in the water the, with the, the salsa band. <laughs> I I don't know enough about music distribution, the back end of that. I yeah. know a little bit about film distribution. That's really what I'm asking you. Okay, and film distribution comes in a whole bunch of different gradients, and it's and it's changing as we speak. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Paul Hodes, I don't know if you've heard about his new project called United Bridge. He's working with Van McLeod, the film czar of the state of New Hampshire, okay. and a lot of the filmmakers uh, in on the seacoast. Is this Paul Hodes? I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, who's the a congressman. Politician? Okay, gotcha. Right. U.S. congressman. Right. Uh, Ex-U.S. congressman. But he works with uh, Bob Lord over at Parma. Oh, great, yeah. yeah. Okay, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they're coming up with a uh, next-generation film distribution uh, and I imagine it's music also. I've only had one sure. real brief meeting with him, mm -hmm. but I've seen seen their stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but film distribution is is changing because of Hulu, Netflix. Of course, iTunes has been around for now, what, five years mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. for film distribution. Uh, but Netflix is doing their own stuff now. Hulu is doing their own stuff. Mm -hmm. There's there's one of the things that if if... if I wanted to, I could take a film that I shot, the 24-minute Crooked mm -hmm. Lane, I could take it and distribute it right now if I wanted to spend the time and agony sure, to do that sure. with iTunes <laughs> and various other channels. But it's just not worth it to me financially. I've got too many more 
pressing things to do. Mm-hmm. But it could be out there being distributed. You know, at $1.99 a pop or $0.99 well, see, cents a that's pop. That's kind of where I'm, I'm getting. Yeah. One of the other thing, the things that kept me out of film, other than just small films that I'm interested in working mm-hmm. on, I would just do anyway, is that because of that, it, the whole concept of ASCAP, BMI, back-end royalties, mm-hmm. it, let alone you, there's no more in film, they, they're just not, there is no more uh, per screen rate, period, uh, for composers, ask Kevin Bam, I don't collect anymore, but mm-hmm. now, when you bring it down into the Netflix and Hulu level, there isn't, there's nothing to be measured. Spotify for music is paying, I think, less than a thousandth, one thousandth of a cent per play right now, so... We should look that up and make sure it's absolutely accurate, but uh, it's easily well, it's easily Google. It's, it's, it's a joke. No, I mean, <laughs> what I'm getting at is that again, I'm not even complaining. It's, oh, the artist the doesn't make anything. Well, I'm just saying the world changes, which yeah. and you either adapt, you don't. I've adapted well, by moving into a different model myself. Mm-hmm. I can still make great music and collaborate, which is what I love doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's just not in the the film sphere. And, and if in the end it's going to be an Indiegogo campaign to make a film. That's going to end up that's, going out on Hulu, which there's there's no money for me know, to even ask for. I mean, yeah, what are we going to ask for? You know? I, and I've worked on, uh, you know, 30 local uh, films yeah. in the last 10 years. Um, none of them made money. Yeah. None of them. Mm. And they shouldn't make money, to be honest sure. with you. That's, that's sort of a separate You know, the thing about it is, though, is we're talking about... Uh, you know, uh, June 6th, 7th, and 8th is the 48-hour film festival sure. in New Hampshire. And uh, there's 50 teams, 50 teams yep. shooting films for a long weekend uh, in the state of New Hampshire. And if you go to the New York City Film Festival, 48-hour film festival, there's 200, 250. Hmm. There are filmmakers, you know, like I said, there's a thousand short films being shot a day. Yeah. I, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's sort of low of the art thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and most of the people are economics majors. <clears throat> They're uh, they have no training. Yeah. I've worked on films I go, shit, who's the producer on this film? You know, what's the producer yet? If someone isn't spending, forget, fuck 40 hours a week, if they're not spending but 80 hours a week. But they're doing it for week, the love of it. No, but if you're not spending 80 hours a week on your Whatever Olympic swimming, you know, whatever yeah. you're not going to be an Olympic swimmer. That's what happened with the music thing, which was you get these young people. Unless you're but, Buddy Rich, but people who are 35. But still, but this. still, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called, uh, I believe it was Outliers, or it might have been uh, yeah. the earlier book about 10,000 hours. It's 10,000 hours, man. It's 10,000 hours. And the thing hours. is, if you're, that's doing, how, if you're doing, 15 you know, Gates got right, there. Yeah. That's how. Right. Bill Joy got there. That's how all and of them for a got lot of there. people, and I can speak. I put a lot of a, a lot of time into things that never worked out, and I think that's the usual thing that happens in life. Mm-hmm. And you better be aware of that. That most of the time, it's like when I when I sold Fuller Brush. You know, they they said Dennis, you're going to sell one out of ten people, and so all I had to do is get through that first nine of people slamming doors in my face, telling me to fuck off. Uh, meeting, you know, whatever it might be, to that one guy that you sold enough to to make it worthwhile that you went through all that other nine. That was their, the way they, they, they looked at it. And it was an interesting way. It was drove me crazy because sometimes it was really hard to get through seven, eight, and nine when they're chasing you down the street, you know, or whatever it may be before you get to ten. But your percentages are, are really, really low. How do we, uh, how do you, how do you work against that? Especially in an, in a, in a, in a, a, a landscape that's, that's shifting all the time. Can like I, can I just say something? Please, you, yeah. you said the answer. You said the answer in your question. What was that? How do you work to get through that? You work. 
you yeah, fucking don't, work. I don't understand. I mean, that's you, like you say, you got to go through painstakingly go through nine people to get one sale. Yeah. Right. You work. And you're you your don't give worst, up. You're your own worst enemy because the inclination, and it certainly happens to most people, is to give up and to, to well, shift. Guess, but yeah. that's. But let me let me put yeah, one more thing in here because that to me has always been one of the really difficult things about life is you're constantly faced in situations where you don't know if you've done too much and it's time to shift or you haven't done enough and if you give up. You're, you're kicking yourself in the ass. Well, I think that know? successful people it's, know when to do that. Do you think they... But it's, it's not <laughs> or all the time. Or made the right, right decision and that led to success. Well, no. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of successful yeah. people are lucky uh, in oh, the right sure, place at the right time or whatever. But, I mean, successful people have a better way of going, it's mm-hmm. time to change. You know, at Cisco, when I worked for Cisco for a long time, it, we as a company would always say... Make a decision, we're going to do this, we're going to engineer this product, let's go. And then analyze it each step of the way. And if it ever got to the point and said, this was a mistake, Mm. let's do something new. And then you would make that other process. And I think most was that success, a one person decision or was no, that no, no, no. That was decision? a team decision. Yeah, that was a so team decision. Fine. But so you know, not, but still, but still, the process was, and I think that's why Silicon Valley was so successful over so many years and still is. Yeah, is because they grew up on that Stanford, UC Berkeley kind of attitude: mm-hmm. aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. But always be aware of where you're at, and yeah. if you're making a mistake, change. Right. Go. So there's a. Uh, there's a. Uh, I'm not talking much about the games industry because uh, obviously there's a lot of knowledge there that you know that that I would have to share to really to make it understood because you're not you know uh, this isn't your thing right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in the S and M though. Is okay. it the same thing? No. <laughs> well, sometimes no explanation. Work, work, <laughs> working for certain companies, sometimes I wonder if I'm not a masochist. Uh, no, uh, one of the things that's done really well in the games industry, you get a lot of young people, you get a lot of people who don't um, take direction from uh, more experienced people who don't believe, who believe that creativity trumps experience um, to their own detriment. Uh, one of the basic concepts that comes up that's done very well for young people who a lot of people are very privileged in the industry feel like because they've done this, you know, they've made this little game, therefore they're ready to make Assassin's Creed, which is, you know, this could be a, a 200, who, who knows how many millions of dollars they're throwing behind this, uh, mm-hmm. these kind of large projects. Especially putting people who are great designers in, in management positions, blah, blah, blah. It's about goddamn time. The, oh, shit, the, the good thing is, right it's so parched. <laughs> the, uh, the concept... Uh, uh, sorry, Duncan, I didn't no, 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 no. you want. No, would you uh, like to open one, or you want to open? Hell no! We're gonna just knock the neck off of it. Like, that. <laughs> use your teeth. <laughs> well, no, this one's already open. Uh, just a little bit of that left. The what, uh, what kind of wine am I drinking? This is uh, organic. Oh, no is, does the audience know that we're drinking wine? <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> no, yes. Maybe. <laughs> they would have to... Uh, Did you an answer? Commit to it. Are we all the same ones? Here. Well, sure. then here you go. We'll, we'll both be both. This is an Escher oh, drawing. This is an Escher drawing. <laughs> Except half of us have to be on our backs, right? As we go around the circle. We're all mother. There's a little left here. Uh, was, you're not drinking wine. No, no. The bottle's closed, too. <laughs> The, uh, the so idea is called uh, Failing Fast. We were talking about S&M. Yes, we were. And is Failing Fast. Going right at something, and the faster that you can determine that it's a failure, 
the the faster so uh, the the idea the the, the the problem with game making a digital games is making a digital game is the director in the end for most narrative based games is the player. Uh huh. Okay. The player can choose their way through the game. Right. Sort of like a choose your own adventure. Oh, I understand what you're saying. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. As in, if in a movie, you could choose what's going to happen, where you're going in the scene, or whether you're going to go jump off the. Well, the how about this? Not. The bottom line is you're in a in a city street, and there's a bar, and then there's a convenience store, and there's a club. In a movie, you would then lead the viewer to the bar, to the convenience store, and then to the club. Mm-hmm. Or whatever you like. In the game, many many narrative games, and I'm leaving out open world games, which are even different than a story. There's a number of genres, subgenres. But in your average narrative game, what they call on rails, you can force the player to go to the bar, to the convenience store, mm-hmm. to yeah, the. Yeah. But that's sort of an old school concept. You can get a lot more creative uh, energy out of the player. You can give them a lot more uh, options. You can give them a lot more. Um, I'm missing. There's a word here that's perfect, but whatever. A uh, control over the situation. Doesn't that translate to more work by more people, bigger budget? No. Oh, okay. It does if it's not <laughs> pre-produced. But it could be. When yeah. you're like, oh, well, what happens if we're the bar next? Uh, no, but give it a little bit of thought, and, and again, well, you know, to experience, someone who's made a number of these games before can say, what we really need to do is make up these core scenes, just like a quest, and then make up these sub-scenes, mm-hmm. and then if they go out of order, then fire the sub-scene rather than the core. What are you talking about sub-scene? We're, you know, that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. the point is, fail fast. You, you, uh, what is agency? Agency. You can give the player a sense of agency mm-hmm. if... They say, you know, I want to go to the convenience store. And somehow the story still works out. Still feels right. The things they learn at the convenience store lead them to the yeah, bar. And or you, but you, and of course, the, the, the terrible way to do it, to the go, rote right. way to do this, is to come up with all of these trees, uh, action trees. Well, if they do this, then this, and then, then this. Which is terrible, because something's always going to be a better way, and it's always going to yeah. feel like you're being, you know... So you're talking about making them circular. No, it's writing... Come back on, onto it. No, the point I'm making is the writing isn't linear. Mm-hmm. You're not saying, yeah. and you do this, and you meet this guy. It's so more lifelike. It's you need yeah. to write so that regardless of what happens, what are you really trying to do? We're trying to scare them. Okay, that's not hard. Well, we're trying to scare them by going to the convenience store and then they get this and they go there and it turns out it was this. No, 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 no. You're just trying to scare them, right? Yeah. So but, you know, if you think about it, if you if you write something linear, linearly, <laughs> get a straight line. Give me a fucking. <laughs> this is this wine. More wine here, please, waitress. <laughs> But if you write it that way, in a linear, uh, you know, in real life, it doesn't. It never works that way. You Mm -hmm. know, it's like that butterfly effect, the 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 chaos factor. So that comes into play, and you've got to be able to handle that in a game. I imagine. Well, and the cool thing about it is, in order to actually execute on this, to pull the whole circle around, you can't write a script, hire the people, execute, pass it in. It doesn't work that way. That's what they'll call waterfall, and I'm sure film is adapted as well, but this waterfall methodology. Uh, uh, Games have have, have accepted a scrum methodology, which is this little, tiny little projects, one after another, and at, at all times, you can play the game. So even if the game is just a bunch of white boxes and 
a little mm. square that's you, you can still, and we're going to put a bar, so this spring, so, we're going to make a bar, a convenience store, and a thing. And you're not even dressing them up, they're just there, and we're going to give this a couple of little notes, and da 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 and then clarify. you just play it. At any time, then, you can, somebody on the production team can play the game. Such at, the as end of, the time. at the end of the sprint. And sprints could be a week sprint. long or a month long or whatever. So and in this, film, it would be yeah. like being able to see the film after a certain length of time magically put together with Always the scenes and lights without... That said, you, know, you break the thing. You wouldn't expect to see the entire film, but you could mm-hmm. say this would be to make a some sort of an analog to film. I'm not willing to shoot any of the script until we at least know what the basic concept of the thing is, which is it's a love story and they fall in love and the tragedy happens and in the end one of them. Well, you, you, you have to have the, the basic... I mean, everybody has to have that same vision whether it's a romantic comedy or right. drum comedy or whatever they right. call these things nowadays. Uh, you have to have that common vision and that starts from day one. Mm. You've got to have the team with that common vision. And then, you know, you start breaking it down and and I was thinking while you were saying that, one of the things that screenwriters have a problem with in film is that until a screenwriter knows what the film world is like, what that final one hour and 30 minutes is going to be like, they write a scene, scene one, scene two, scene 40, scene 100. They do their their 120 pages, and it's going to turn out to be a two-hour film. And they and Dennis, you and, you and I have been through this many times with yours mm-hmm. and Gene's scripts. You, you, here's a scene that's three pages long between two people. Let's call it two people, and let's call it romantic. Let's uh, a man and a woman. They're in this three-minute scene, three pages, and they've got this dialogue. They're going on, and in the middle of the production, the director and the actors are realizing. Hmm. That's a four-minute scene. That's a four and a half-minute scene. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. so how do they make it four and a half minutes? The director has the right to add some dialogue, lengthen out their lovemaking, lengthen mm-hmm. out this, do more B-roll uh, of uh, you know, do more coverage, make it slower, <laughs> make it yeah, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. And that's where the screenwriter doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. Only the really, really good screenwriters would have the ability to be working on set during that process. Mm-hmm. And it's a very chemical process, in a way. Yeah, uh, and that's fascinating. Catalytic, I, in that sense. I would imagine. The director's in there stirring the pot. Yeah. You know, he's trying to get that right mixture. He's, he, you know, he's thrown in the, um, yeah, not a cook, but a garlic or onions yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And he's stirring it, and he's smelling it, and he's going, oh, man, that's rich. We got to need that. Are there screenwriters that that write to that mm-hmm. rather than saying I'm just going to try to get I'm going to try to get as they much as I can. Think they do, but think yeah. you know, think about it. They don't know who the characters are. Mm-hmm. So you write. I I, I I bought the rights to a book called uh, Life Before Her Eyes by Laura Kaczynski, and we shot the film mm-hmm. in in 2006. I hired the screenwriter Emil Stern, uh, and in my in my mind. Uh, when we were developing the script, you know, you always look at a character, you know, whether it's Brad Pitt or whomever. Uh, I always looked at Uma Thurman as playing this role. Fucking mistake. Mm. I, I mean, she did a good job. Uma, we love you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she wasn't right for, she didn't feel she was you know, right in the end. I don't, and, and I don't know whether she does or not. I mean, uh, 
I love you, Emma. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we didn't get along during the production. Yeah, uh, sometimes it's just not there, it, The right? chemistry wasn't yeah. there. Now, and there's nothing you can do. She could, right. No, 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 not me. No, the, the director on that set was not me, obviously. Right. But, I mean, you and you and her personally did not uh, butted heads or something? No, no, yeah. it was... Yeah, the whole crew. Just the whole. <laughs> yeah. It just was not a good chemical reaction, and no matter how hard you try, that comes out in the final product. Yeah, I wonder if that's it. I mean, I've certainly never worked with actors like that. I mean, I work with certain voice actors, yeah. but musicians. Well, I mean, those voiceover guys. Yeah, uh, no, they're no. fucked, aren't they? Those assholes. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait a minute. <laughs> but musicians. Uh, I know that I'm uh, different types of people, but. Uh, I have a friend who's a guitar player. Um, Only he's one super. <laughs> he, he's great at separating his life. Good looking guitar. Out player. from all guitar, all guitar players. <laughs> oh, he's always oh, telling they look great. You're ugly. Uh, you're handsome. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cares more about how they look. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he, this guy is great at separating out his real life <clears throat> from when you go ready, mm-hmm. start playing. And he doesn't inject any of that. So you could argue that's professional. I don't think that's it. What he does is he then draws from those experiences and brings them in, but keeps that music space kind of sacred. This is an ex-jazz guy, too, or not ex. He's like a sort of a semi-jazz guy as well. So plays jazz, plays pop, and come into the studio. Really game. I like personally working with people like that. That said, Freddie was a singer, was a phenomenal singer, and you just don't know what you're going to get that day. Mm-hmm. Really on the on the you know on that, the that's skin. A, that's another thing that <clears throat> that when you're going through let's let's say it's a 40 day production of something, and some actor uh, let's call her Uma Thurman um, is on set 35 out of those 40 days. One day she comes in and she's not feeling good. She doesn't do her best. And the other day, she's just phenomenal. Yeah, what do you you do? can see that in post. Yeah, There's nothing you can do because you can't go back. You, you can't extend back. it. They're on a tight schedule. We're on a tight yeah. schedule. We're on a budget. It's not like we can come back and reshoot <clears throat> right. a couple of days, which we've had done. Do you hedge? Done. Do you hedge? Mm-hmm. Is that the secret? Is to make is to write this much of a film and then give yourself this much to work on? Say, if I have 40 days and I'm really going to write a 20-day film and just get... Is that how you do that? No. Or, no. no. You, you, you just write, go for it. You write a 45-day production budget Every film time. and you get 40. Yeah. So you've got to make it work. That pay, I mean... Yeah. Well, what, what, what about the purpose? What about the use of uh, improv then to, to shorten those... Some times? directors do that. Cassavetes comes back to me. Yeah, yeah. But But see, let's take the Coen brothers, probably the two most successful. No improv at all. Nothing. Nothing. The Hitchcock approach. Everything. Real (laughs) perfect. So some directors are improv. I mean, uh, Radon Chong, one of my partners, Mm -hmm. um, she was on the um, Duplass Brothers uh, film recently. Um, uh, Jeff lives downstairs. And, uh, in fact, Mr. Mudd produced it. Russell and Leanne Hoffman and John Malkovich produced it. And uh, uh, she played Susan Sarandon's uh, lover uh, in, in the film. And she goes, there was a lot of times on set that they would say, well, let's, let's play with this. Let's do one take where we just play with it. You know the general feel of what I want to happen in the scene. Yeah. You know, in a scene, uh, a director's got to tell the actor what happened before, and what's going to happen after. 
So the actors got an arc in that scene because, as you as you mentioned earlier, films are shot out of sequence. You, you're going to shoot the end of the film on day one and the start of the film on the last day. Exaggeration, but it could yeah could be. So you got to tell the actor what's going on before and what's going on in the middle. So. A good improv person. You're a very good improv. I'm a horrible improv. Oh, you're actor. great. I, no, fuck no. You. I'm, I'm horrible. Fuck you, you too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, sometimes, and Duplass brothers did this, they, they would say to Ray Dawn, and Ray Dawn, phenomenal improv actor. Mm. I love working with her as an actor. But she would, they would just go, improv. Action. Cool. And they'd let them play. They know where they're starting from. They know where they're getting to. That's it. Yeah. Remember? That's that part, that intro and ending. One of the things you run into a lot, in, in I run into, I don't do that much voice production for video games, although I, I like doing mm-hmm. it. Um, and I, I'm lucky to work with some people who've done some really deep, heavy voice trees. Um, some of the biggest video games of all time have a lot of options, a lot, again, player agency. So you look at the voice actor and you're saying, this is what you have to come into this and this is where you need to leave it. But in the game situation, you actually have to solve that a number of different ways. There's a game called Mass Effect, which is done very well. It's one of the most successful games of all time. Um, you can play as uh, a female lead or a male lead and you're going through the scenes. Many of the scenes are, are similar mm-hmm. uh, or actually the same scenes. So if you imagine, if Dennis is playing, you know, an NPC, a non-player character, someone who's mm-hmm. talking in the scene to the avatar, to the player, you have to respond to this big macho guy who's looking at you, well, what the fuck are you talking about? Or mm. to this sort of, you know, uh, heavy, clever, smart, whippy kind of mm-hmm. young woman who's going, oh, really? And you, she's got to deliver the same line. And so some of these games, I'm not sure how Mass Effect does personally, but some of these games will have the actors deliver the lines to respond to the different ins and outs. Ooh, that's a that's a fun acting. I mean, when when you know, I start I started acting around the same time. I started acting in sixty two, sixty three. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you're not that old. I apologize. I am. I am. <laughs> but you know, when you start acting, you 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 have to do that sort of thing. You have to go. Okay, now say this line. X, say this one, Y, say right. this line, Z. Right. And you go through that process. Right. And, uh, and the way Malkovich always said it to me, one of my acting coaches was Malkovich's acting coach out of Steppenwolf. And um, one of the things he used to force me to do is say, okay, bring that emotion up from here. Bring that emotion up from here. And remember that time that your father died remember that time that you your father beat you uh, right. with an inch of your life bring that emotion up and say the line mm-hmm. can you own that can it's you, can you call yours, it yours it's your no, thing can you, can you as you right. as I can't now yeah. I'm not that good of an actor I'm now sorry. but I was that good of an actor in the 60s when I did it all the time yeah. now I'm just acting on occasional spurts here and there if I were to spend a lot of time you know, it takes rehearsal. It takes 10,000 hours. It just takes time to... I can't bring it up now, so I need... Um, we're talking about me personally, and I apologize. No, yeah, that's good. I, I didn't mean to be personal. Example, I was yeah. thinking but, a little more... But, you know, in general, I personally, I can't do it right now as well as I'd like to sure, be able to do sure. it, but I'm not doing it on get, a daily you, basis. Yeah, Rusty, I, I play a character in improv like Ben Johnson that I played for 20-some years. 
But the first day out there, ben Johnson, in the, the Olympic sprinter. <laughs> I have no, no idea you what you're talking about. Same color, you know. Yeah. We're ready. Yeah. 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 Same muscle tone. For the rest of us, what do you mean, Ben Johnson is? Ben Johnson, England's greatest poet. Okay, great. Yeah. Shakespeare's best friend. Understood. Go ahead. Please. I, I I'm sorry. That, to no, no. I played that character in improv situations and festivals and so on for a number of years, but I've it still takes it. me. Have you seen me do it? Didn't you do it at that Italian restaurant out in No, that Greenland? was a different character. That <laughs> oh, okay. was a Montracer from Edgar. Oh, okay, okay. Ben Johnson's a little more uh, a little more jovial. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies man, uh, my prop is a rose, which I would carry around and hand to a woman and say her a wonderful thing and tell her she was the only one in the world, and then pick another rose and give it to another woman before she Then you do a spinning back kick to the head. That's Get out right. of my face. Now you're oh, you're doing that, you're, you're giving that rose to Duncan as a beautiful woman. Is that Thank you. Does that mean you know, he was the closest one available <laughs> 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 I could have handed it to myself, but over all these wine bottles. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, what was I going to say? Oh, it my, still my takes me a day to work the rest of I'm going to need some explanation here. So. What's that? I'm going to have to explain this podcast to my sons again. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we just need to provide notes with these. That's right. You know, and then there's there's like study guides, yeah. and uh, yeah. we can really go full into it. One, one thing that I enjoy about this is that, uh, and as I told the guys, my, my whole real enjoyment, and Grace too, because Grace is going... Uh, what purpose does this serve? <laughs> I don't know, but it's no, it's wine. It's, it's wine. wine yeah. Damn it! The camaraderie and wine. Right. If it's nothing else, we get do. we get no. We get you get good minds together, and we talk about things unfettered, and uh, um, that's that's good. And I think anybody that's that's, yeah. that's half uh, gives half a thought to things uh, will find things in there to interest them because we're all smart people. We all have uh, uh, done different done different things in different parts of the world. And here we've come together for this one thing called a podcast. Well, it's such a whereby funny, uh, it's yes, a funny right. name, but I, that's what I what name? about this medium. I think mm-hmm. that's what's fascinating mm-hmm. about the medium is that it, since it's inexpensive to produce, since it's inexpensive to distribute, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the mm-hmm. genius thing and, and totally go to the other side of this conversation and support both <laughs> opposing concepts at the same time. Since it's completely it's trivial to produce on a on a financial level really the only thing that matters is the human part is the mm-hmm. is, are the minds are is the discussion so in a sense it's distilling things down us right here uh, is distilling it down because it's a performance of sorts but it's not a polished performance even when we get to reading the script which sometimes gets pushed to the back because there's so much interesting to say even when we get to that that's um, and I forgot totally what I was going to say. You see, this it's, is also it's, the magic. It doesn't necessarily need to be polished. It, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's not polished. Is not. And Gene, Gene was a big proponent of that. If I can bring Gene back into this, uh, in his music when we did uh, theater, uh, he always said, you know, I don't want it to be perfect. He didn't want that that beat to be perfect on the song because life isn't perfect. And he was more interested in reflecting that, not to a gross degree, mm-hmm. of course, yeah. where you're going to be offended or, or you know, I can't listen to that. But just subtle things that remind us that life is not perfect. We cannot achieve perfection and to artificially stimulate it or simulate it, either way, um, is uh, is not uh, is not working towards the heart of the truth. Yeah, but isn't and, that uh, kind of I'm 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 going to use the word repost so, from masturbation. Uh, you know, it, it, nothing's perfect. Nothing can right. ever be perfect. Yeah, we don't. Even no matter know how many is. times you think it's perfect, it's not it's really. It's not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and the word the word perfect calls into question the concept of time. Perfect gives that, at least to me, and I'll throw it out, 
uh, gives me the intent. Throw it on before wait, we wait. Wait, wait. I use that. The, I was like, well, Dylan's back. It's the idea that perfect is perfect is is captured in a moment, and it's unassailable. In that it couldn't be better, right? That's the definition of perfect. It could not be better. Well, so to me, that's difficult. You have to throw out the concept of time. If it's perfect, then tomorrow when you learn something else, could it be more perfect? You know, it can be less perfect. It's more perfect. More perfectness. That's it. So. It's funny because it's kind of what we were saying. You were saying about Miss Thurman, and I was, I was saying about my friend, the singer, who you never know what you're going to get, who I love. And I, the trick with me is to cast that Chase singer name, name, on the didn't. right day yep. to say, oh, I'm not going to either. Um, <laughs> uh, it's to cast that singer on the right day to say, today's the day that I know what I need this person to do is make me go, this is epic. But I don't know exactly how. And to be honest, I don't fucking care how. <laughs> Can you do epic today? Yes, no. Oh, absolutely. Epic could be, oh, or it could be, ah, it could be a zillion different ways, but it's as long like as I'm going you'll know epic, it when you see it. You know, you know, <laughs> that's got to yeah, be an just, analog. You know. Yeah, it's, it's so hard. Um, you know, sometimes you do a performance, um, and, and, and Dennis knows exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes you do a performance, and you go, wow. That felt good. Yeah. I just, I, you know, it's like I want to go home and masturbate. It felt so good. <laughs> I just want to put the ice. I want to do it on stage, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, and then the next day, it's not off. And, and you're doing the same thing. Two days later, yeah. And, yeah. and then pretty soon, you just go, yeah, it's, it was good. It was not good. Yeah. It was uh, okay. That was not my best performance, or that was that was right up there with my best performances. Yeah, you, you just get away from this concept of zero and a hundred. It's yeah. somewhere in the gray area. It depends it's, on what time. Mm, I think each time. Well, exactly. But you never know what you're going to do tomorrow, and then you know one day you die. Somebody could come in and quantitatively say. Quantitative. That was his best performance. Right. He was Some perfect. And the bitch director left it on the goddamn floor. I came in and said, can I just take that little piece of film off the floor? And he's like, fuck you, no. Derek, are you listening? <laughs> I, 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 to, uh, I have no idea who that is. Well, to our, our friend Derek, who was in uh, Devil's Minion. Devil's Minion, our short film from featuring Gene, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, I actually know about this because I remember you did some work on Devil's Minion at my place. Did yeah, we? We really did get sound yeah. there, yeah. yeah. Uh, Derek, I was going to talk about Derek and I forgot. So. Sorry, Devil's Minion, when you say Devil's Minion, it's, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's Dennis's naked ass walking into the water. That's that's it? Yeah. That's, there you go. Six in the morning in the middle <laughs> of my neighborhood. But yep. you did a good job losing a ton of weight for that fall. scene, which <laughs> is one of the things that I'll do. No, no, I stretched the picture. Don't want me fooling. Those of you who you're not to lose weight. I forgot what I was going to say, but I do remember something that I was going to say a while back, uh, which was that uh, there's, uh, uh, most of us here have seen, the, at least two of us, have seen the movie uh, Man and a Woman from the, from the 60s, which was a wonderful... Uh, well, who is the director? Uh, Laloche, Le- Claude Laloche. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to know any of these. And really, who, who did it star? It starred... Uh, <laughs> I was looking for someone that I know. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, it's a, it, was a French, it was a French film, and it won Best, uh, best Foreign Film that year. Okay. But um, if you get the video, which I happen to have, there's a making of segment on there, and it shows how the director worked, and I love those. And his one of his uh, uh, things was, this goes back to something we were talking about hours ago, was that he would get the music beforehand, the beautiful music from Man and a Woman. Da, 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 
Da, da, da, da, da, I'm familiar da, with that. Part. Sing that with me. That one. He had the music. Everybody. Two different melodies. Let's do the bossa nova song on each other. Yeah, it's sort of Latin. Well, he had that all recorded beforehand, and he played that for the actors because that's what he wanted the scenes. That's the mood he wanted for the scenes, and he used that to inspire them. And it was all improvised. He said the actors said he just told them this is what I want from the scene, and if he had a particular line that he wanted worked in there, he would. He would tell them that and say, "Get this line in there at some point." But that whole movie was was improvised. Um, the characters were improvised around. He tried to get it all first take. Um, tried to get it all first take. All first I take. would have said, "Oh my God, don't worry about the number of takes. This is going to yeah. take a while." Well, he was. He was. Uh, he, I've heard Eastman say that. <laughs> well, I've heard Eastman say that. <laughs> but there was no final cut. Final <laughs> <laughs> pro. As long as it works. But uh, I've heard Eastwood say that too, which is when they shoot it. What film? year did they shoot yeah. it? Here. Bring in another reel. Six. 66. I shot on Super 8 in 66. So, yeah. He was, that uh, was hard to He edit. had a new comedian who had just come from a Fellini film. From what I understand, and and he came to uh, to she came to his film, and he just had one light guy and one sound guy in him, and she was going, "What is this Mickey Mouse crap?" And she almost left, and it turned out to be the best thing that she had ever done. She got an Academy Award nomination for it. And, yeah, but and Man and a Woman is the story. It isn't the music. It isn't the lights. It isn't the sound. It was just it's black and white. And it no, it's was, color. No, yep. Man and Woman is black and white. Isn't Some it? of it is black and white. The memories are black and white. But the uh, well, no, some of the memories are color too. No, it's definitely. I've got to go back and look at this. Definitely color. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is where this is. I, I, I've resisted this part of the conversation the entire time. I'm going to resist it now. (laughs) It's always about the story. It's always about well, it's storytelling. No, stop for a second. It is always about the story. It's always about the story. It's always yeah. about the story. But, it's always wait, about, wait, wait, wait. But, no, no, no. It's always it's about the story. About, even if... It, it's, here's my, wait, my little take on it. Like, <laughs> one sentence is it's either you do the story, you tell me, Don. You either you either writing the story or you are accounting for the fact that you are not writing the story. But it has to be accounted for. What do you think? Dylan, recently uh, back from a kidnapping. All right, all right. Oh, oh, oh. No. Um, I'm sorry, I've been yapping. <laughs> How dare you no. talk in a podcast? <laughs> audio? Yeah. Uh, mine, mine, my friend. It's all mine. <laughs> Go ahead. He's behind a wall now, and I don't remember what the Quick, Dylan, tell us what you meant. It's, it's story, story, story. What's story. 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 You have oh. to account for it. Yeah, you either have to, you have to feel that you're a part of that story mm. uh, with some of the experiences of your life. As the audience. As, as the audience, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you're writing it, I assume it's coming from some something you want to get across. You're trying to, to be a, you're trying to be an audience member when you write, in a sense, because you have to be. It's who you have to please. Yeah. But when you when they you act, are, are, are you are, are you are you doing the same thing? Are you bringing your own experience to that story? Yeah, to feel how that person feels in that particular scene. Like if they're if they're sad, you bring up like, oh yeah, my I could think of a family member dying or a breakup, something that like tugs at the heartstrings to get you that emotion because you you want to be believable in uh, in your emotion if you're joking around in a serious scene it's obviously not going to get the, the story across which right. is really the entire point you know it uh, reminds me of in, in The Champ the movie in the 30s that starred Wallace Beery and, and Jackie Cooper they took shit out I've actually seen were that after I was born I know there were they, they took Jackie Cooper who was a little boy and they wanted him to cry in the scene about his father and uh, what they did was they took his dog behind a car and, and pretended to shoot the dog 
and told him they'd done that, and then they put the kid on camera. Of course, he was all tears and gave him the scene. They want if you watch it now. Yeah. It's it's hard. Jackie Cooper killed himself when he was twenty four. No, no, and uh, he's, no, <laughs> he's, 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 the studio <laughs> shot him. The studio <laughs> shot him. In order to make his wife the actress cry. Who do you care about most? Bring that person in. One of the things you know, the moral here is obviously always shoot something of somebody when you want emotion from your leading actors. It's funny because two no saline. Involved here. <laughs> We're gonna shoot somebody. We're serious. <laughs> One of the interesting things about being a creative in the uh, in the in the digital game industry is that, and so Dennis comes in from the VO. Dennis has done some really very successful VO in the in digital game industry uh, with League of Legends. He's also in League of Legends as well. I'm thinking of buying an island through VO and, and, and <laughs> very small island, but an island. <laughs> One island. palm tree. One tree. Yeah. Uh, you know, too bad the money uh, isn't there, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the dialogue and the and the music are both very narrative points to the to the games industry. Mm. The industry founders over and over again, especially with younger studios, on the idea that in order to play a game successfully through, it's going to take about thirty hours, fifteen, maybe ten for a, a smaller game, a great game. You could because you're going to want to play it more than once. You're going to try it maybe get to the ending with a couple of choices, right? Mm-hmm. I don't so you know. can't make it ridiculously long. No, I'm, I'm, like I'm laying that out. Yeah. No, but let's say it's thirty hours. Yeah, thirty mm-hmm. hours is great because then you can so what do, do you a marathon. Play? So what are you yeah. playing for the stakeholders? What are you playing for the stakeholders? Yeah. What are you going for VC? What are you going to play for them? You're going to play five minutes of the game. Oh, okay. So yes. so what do you what do they fucking care about in those five minutes? The story? No. The way it looks. Oh, because you don't have time. No, to let me be more specific. <laughs> Cut that down. The way it looks. looks. Mm-hmm. So sound Done. sound gets pushed to the background music and sound? last. No, no, no. I'm thinking about sound. I'm not even talking about no. The story. Yeah. That is the most beautiful convenience store I have ever seen in the game. <laughs> it's so realistic. And the bar across the street, gorgeous. No, see what I mean? Yeah. So that's why it's 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 difficult. You look and say, you know what? That's true. But you got to live in there for twenty or thirty hours. You're not going to make it on. 30 minutes of music and yeah. two actors. Well, that's the problem. With, I think that's the problem with uh, with presenting any work of art to to producers, investors, is that you only can show a portion or a part of it. But Dennis, you, uh, the group of us could sit down and watch all of a man and a woman in the next 90 minutes or less than two hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, I had a discussion with, and I will name a name, I had a talk with uh, this guy named Warren Spector, who in the games industry is a legend. Yeah. We were both speaking in Montreal, I was speaking on audio, I was speaking on obviously something far more important than I was. He's a very legend guy. Sweet guy, we're sitting in the back room, and I remember just thinking, it's Warren Spector, what the fuck? I have a question, you know? I mean, she's a nice guy, I have no trouble talking with him, but I, I'm going for this. Because yeah. it was a, sort of a difficult question. I look at Warren and said... You said Warren, baby. Listen, <laughs> you make games. One of the problems I have, I'm a musician, I want to know the arc of the game. In order to do that, I have to get the cheats out, I have to try to... I Blasting through a game, I would be able to get through it in six hours. It takes mm. an entire work day for me to get through it, a game, even with cheats and all that. But all I care about is these big emotional high points. That's what I do, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my job. How do you play games? And uh, I guess I, I don't want to call exactly what Warren said out because I don't remember exactly. But the point of the conversation was guys like Warren don't have time to play, you know, 50 games a year. No you can't play a game a week. 
Mm. Whereas you director types can watch 50 films in a year. Fuck yeah, you sit down and watch yeah. five or six in a day, right? But we and don't immerse becomes, ourselves 30 hours into them. So it, them it becomes interesting over. that you get a lot of your information as a director, as these, as these big game guys, big game designers and stuff, from a few games within the genre that you play all the way through, but a lot of it just comes from hearsay. Imagine mm. if you were... A filmmaker, but you never, you only watch the first 15 minutes of everybody's film. (laughs) (laughs) So the story does get thrown to the side a lot of the times in the game industry just because it doesn't fit in with the VC. Isn't that the the struggle that that all of us who are creative have? Is how do you bring the creative vision to life with the least number of throats? (laughs) The answer is slit on its hydra. I can give it to you. Ready? For me? Solo fucking piano. Shut the fuck up and listen to the next three minutes. So you're and you, the, poetry, problem solved. You're gonna be the, you're gonna be the mind. Podcast over. You're gonna be the mind who wears. You're gonna be the mind who walks out on stage and wears just a loincloth and does. Well, the I don't know if you want to see that. me that way, but yes. Because because uh, the, the mimes paint. in the '30s, for instance, were really against any sort of right. of, uh, of accoutrements that in, enhanced or to be the, to be direct. They were more. I, I don't actually believe. I believe that what I'm saying is that's a quick solution. No, the solution mm. is to fucking do it anyway. Get the people you need to do. Give them as much love as you can. Collaborate as hard as you fucking can. Try to get as much money as you can, or whatever, and ch- just try to do it and make it. Out of everybody pointing in the same direction, I, I I cannot not collaborate. It's yeah, collaboration is some of the greatest joy for me too. Mine and is sometimes on, if, on a big if, festival. If one out, if it takes nine people to throw my brushes in my face to get one beautiful one, then I've been very very lucky to work on some very successful projects, and all of them are because the people that ask me to work on them, I have built a personal relationship with them. Not, That's so important. Not by networking. I hate that fucking word. Not by, Schmoozy. hey, really, Dylan, now I hear you working games. <laughs> Why don't you tell me something about it? Mm. Fuck that shit. These are the real people. Mm-hmm. It comes down to trust. Just go challenge them to a duel. You know, you no, get to know people really well. It, it, I, you make jokes, but... No, I don't. <laughs> you make jokes, but a you lot of the people the that, that I end up working <laughs> with are... I, I, um, I've always included sports in my life, so I think there's certain yeah. types of people that 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 are familiar with competitive sports. I think a lot of artists. Well, we that all are, here have done martial arts, which mm-hmm. is an interesting. I think a lot of people who are are artists that can can yeah. can can vibe with other artists that are willing to put their bodies on the line or whatever. I think a lot of people that I. I'm just not a good match with. Once, but it wasn't the same. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a good match with a lot of people. A lot of people find me way too aggressive. A lot of people, I, yeah, I, I like to cut so. through the shit. I go to say, what is it that you're really looking for? Here? Oh man, that's so important. Just no, but I mean, a lot point. of people don't want to wanna do that, and that's and I'm I've learned to love those people. They're, that say, per- they're usually not prepared to get to the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah, and I always say, I'm not the right guy. Let me. And and the cool thing about being composers in the games industry, there aren't that many. And that people will pass stuff along and say, you know what, just, I'm not the right guy. You need to work with this guy or this yeah. guy. And It's a small town thing. feel. Yeah. You know, it really is. It, to be honest, it, it kind it of is, although one of the small towns Where is everybody knows LA. everybody. <laughs> Where I show up there and I look like Within that They're context. like, you're wearing those shoes? I'm like, I know you're looking at my shoes and you're not Eat saying me. anything. <laughs> Can you please listen to what it is I do for a living? 
So speak, speaking of moving on, yes, we have this called a table read, which you know usually we get around to the read. Who we uh, don't wrote uh, this piece? we don't have to go all the way through this by any means. We can go partially and uh, well, it's 120 pages. It yeah, that's uh, oh, that's uh, some of it. And you have you have something due tomorrow. We never did get around to talking about each other either. <laughs> you know what what everybody's doing. You have a project due tomorrow. That uh, you're I'm doing I'm doing some uh, trailer work, which is a, a new venture, and and uh, yeah, I need to trailer for a film. Uh, it's just uh, it, the way you know how music for trailers works. Music is basically written separately in a in a well, trailer s- is such strong a, format. Yeah, and then after that, if it's taken up by a major, uh, you know, for a major project, then maybe go back in and do custom work on yeah. that. Yeah. But I'm uh, I'm very familiar with working with that type of music. I've written a number of epic soundtracks for epic games. Well, what I'd like to believe were epic soundtracks that have done relatively well in relatively John Williams sort of things not really John Williams y kind of things most yeah. of the times people say we would like it to sound but what they really mean is we want it to sound like The Dark Knight or Danny Elfman that's yeah. really the so, two things they yeah, really yeah, mean yeah. but credit to good motor credits do I've been again very lucky to work with some very creative open people um, and people always say the same thing you know why aren't, why aren't you doing trailers I, I like I, it's just I've never put my head in there so I have an opportunity to do that so yeah so I'm gonna do. Oh, I'm sorry. So you're the one who asked, man. You want to make it exciting? It's gonna be fucking no. great. It's gonna go. Sh- it's gonna be so. That's what we wanted to hear. Then you're just gonna go. Lay it all on. Suck out. You're gonna have those suck outs because you gotta have the suck out. Describe that measure. No, it's great. One of the. Is that what you call them? Suck outs. Yeah. But the guys who. That's kind of what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the uh, the guys who, who do the actual implementation of the trailers, music into the trailers, those sound guys, those editors, they're brilliant people. They do these amazing things. Uh, the biggest trailer recently, well, the newest one is Man of Steel, but the one before that was the Iron Man 3 trailer. We were listening to the material, the original track that they were working with, which is in 6, and when you listen to it in the actual trailer it's like he's got it all the beats are all moved around it's brilliant they're mm-hmm. there they they see it as this you're basically making this uh I, I'm, I'm talking on my ass this is a new thing no 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 it's it's my my you know what a trailer does well, it's yeah. just presses buttons yeah. that's all you're doing that's it there's the whole they're not giving you the story of the film or anything you how many trailers have you guys seen <laughs> yeah that when you walk in and finally see the film, you go, "Wow, well, that trailer didn't." I know. Uh, yeah, there's nothing. Like it. <laughs> that trailer's not even in the movie. <laughs> Again, I've, I've been lucky to to have some really great great friends yeah. who do this for a living, yeah. and the point is that they're making this 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 meat and 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 veg and awesome dessert and appetizer all in these things, but they turn it over to these editors who are. Talk about out of order and flipping it around and taking this little piece from, yeah. you know, Dylan's trailer and throwing yeah. it in and it's talk about a collaboration. It's collaboration because you know by the time you start and then there's notes and you do the thing yep. and it goes in and it's out and then they cut it back up. It's all remixed out of this and in the end, who knows? You just have a smoothie at the it's end. Very <laughs> different for me. For me, <laughs> little carrot, I, little I want to know a little ice cream. <laughs> I I want to know what it is that we're working on and this is a really different experience so I'm, I'm embracing it anyway it's exciting to do so what was the question? <laughs> nothing you're the one who asked the question <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to remind me I did uh, right. okay well let's uh, uh, let's see let's oh I know what you're saying 
at some point I need to go. No, I'm happy to be here, and uh, yes, Good. I'm happy to do a, a two or three a.m. on this one in order to get through the podcast. Two or three a.m. Jason, the podcast will be until two or three hours. No, no, no. Maybe, maybe you can call me at three, and I'll be like, "Shut the fuck up! I'm working." <laughs> so, Chase, what are you? Uh, what are you up to these days that uh, you could share with us uh, specifically? Same old bullshit. Same old bullshit. Thank you, Chase. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, you're, the, always, you're always working on film projects of one kind. Well, the, the big thing is uh, what we were going to read tonight is mm-hmm. a script that uh, I bought the rights to Gary Paulson's book called The Tent about three years ago. Mm. Uh, I you're talking about. I hired Richard Later to do the screenplay. Uh, he's out of North Carolina. Fun to work with. Phenomenal work with. Um, in, in backtracking a little bit, uh, uh, when I did uh, Life Before Eyes with Uma Thurman, yeah. uh, Brett Cullen played uh, her husband. Brett right. Cullen's an actor from Apollo 13. See him all the time, yeah. You know, you see him, he was on Friday Night Lights, uh, Body of Proof, you know, all kinds of TV shows, 70 films. He's been in 70 films. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, really, really good actor. He played Uma Thurman's uh, husband in the film. And uh, Brett and I hit it off. And. Uh, uh, we've done five films since. Uh, that was in 2006. So, you know, we've been pretty busy. We acted together in Killing Dinner. Uh, I produced and, and directed him. I didn't produce him. I directed and, and directed him in uh, Crooked Lane. He mm-hmm. was uh, he was the caretaker in Crooked yep. Lane. Uh, and um, uh, we bo- uh, we worked on the tent together when I bought the rights to the, the mm-hmm. screenplay. Uh, rights to the film, uh, film rights to the book. Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, there's lots of rights going on there. Uh, going in a circle, and then a left, and then a right, <laughs> and then a right. Yeah, I, so, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But anyway, so when um, you say worked on it together, were you were you talking about how to produce it, or were you? Yeah, yeah, together? he's one of my co-producers. Yeah. Uh, we there's actually five of us. Scott Mendick, um, who <clears> did the original Superman, he did uh, 300. You know, he's a famous. He's doing Ninja. Turtles right now oh. for Paramount. Um, uh, so there's a bunch of us producing it, and right now we're out. Uh, we've done a budget. Uh, literally this week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, went out to a bunch of different investors, uh, and we're expecting to hear back this week or next week on some of the investors we went out to. We're trying to raise the funds to shoot the film uh, later this year in late summer early fall. Would that um, be around here? No, no, no. It's West Texas, 1970s West Texas story. Mm. It's called The Tent, based upon a preacher in, that goes around from town to town and mm-hmm. and basically takes advantage of the people by heal thyself. Mm. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And it's a, it's a phenomenal script. It's, that was the script we were going to read tonight. So that's my number one project. Uh, I also directed in January... Uh, a teaser for a TV pilot for Radon Chong called mm-hmm. The Celebrant, uh, yep. which you you can see online right yep, now. Yeah, you can see it online. Um, and um, it's an eight-minute little teaser that Radon Chong went out and raised money for, and uh, they are going to produce it later on. I actually acted in... Uh, I've never directed and acted in the same film before. That was kind of entertaining in this one. Have you seen it? Yeah. The, okay, the, what'd you think? The segment. Yeah, as we talked about it, I, I, I liked it, and it was, uh, I had, to, there were some questions about the, the last scene there that uh, that I had missed, but in going back and seeing it again, it was cool. 
Yeah. You know, it says it's good. It's to, good to have things made so that when uh, when you when you go back and review it, that it 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 substantiates itself. Yeah. You know, rather than bring things. Well, it's a, it, 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 it. again, it's a teaser. Right. It's a fifty-page script of which we yeah. shot. You know, about five pages. Uh, five six pages and uh, uh, Radon picked out I just love Radon she's so phenomenal but she picked out two scenes and then I directed them uh, with the actors and then she she had actually written the ghost part for me mm. uh, you gave it away Jesus Christ spoiler <laughs> alert spoiler alert so you know, all kinds of people going what you can't say uh, spoiler uh, alert uh, after uh, the spoiler uh, <laughs> yeah you can this is your post it just spoiler spoiler spoiler. Spoiler. apparently you can <laughs> in case the person zoned out at that point don't go back right. spoiler alert but uh, I'm not because of timing I won't be able to work on the full 50 pages yeah. so I'll be working with Radon and helping uh, a new director and a new oh, actor okay. do that and I heard that the new actor is going to be Billy D. Williams oh really? yeah All right. so that would be it's exciting. not bad to be replaced by <laughs> Billy D. Williams <laughs> yeah well um, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I wasn't. I really, yeah. That's I had to leave the, I had Long leave the show. Story. But anyway. Billy D's replacing me, you know. I want to keep the standards up. <laughs> I insisted yeah. on having Mr. Williams replace. Uh, and then, uh, and then I'm working on my two old scripts that I've been working on forever: Clown Bait and Lady. And uh, they're both uh, short stories I bought the rights to uh, a long time ago, and I have the rights forever. Mm -hmm. uh, Can you do what you want to with them then? Uh, oh yeah, know. absolutely. I, I am doing. So. The the problem is is that with Clown Bay, it's such a well written short story that I do work with the author a lot. Mm. Uh, the author happens to be my oldest son, hey, uh, you know. and it's really easy because Thomas uh, Thomas he lives in Melbourne, Australia. He's my oldest son. Uh, he's a phenomenal writer. Phenomenal writer. Uh, he wrote this thing called Clown Bait. Uh, it's about a 30-page short story. Uh, Lady is about a 60-page short story. And uh, Lady, I've read. I remember that. Do you remember that one? I, that's going to make such a great movie. I've got some of the scenes. Don't in my spoil it. <laughs> you want to make that a full a feature length? I want to make that a feature yeah, length. Sure, but Clown Bait, I want to start off as uh, as a short. Uh, it's uh, three main characters, all three uh, young young men, hmm. uh, and uh, it's just a real close, heavy, dramatic thriller sort of thing where two of the three die in the end. Mm -hmm. You don't know which two. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I'm hoping for my guy. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that's what I'm working on right now. So. Um do you uh, when you when you write and create like that? Do you give yourself a time frame, or just whenever it gets to that point, are you happy? Or no, you have to you have to set a time frame. Um, the 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 tent has to be done within the next eighteen months. Mm -hmm. So I have to raise the money within the next six months, mm -hmm. and we think we can do it. It's a phenomenal script. It's um, we're going to market it very much like uh, Mel Gibson did. You know the Passion of Christ. Yeah, it's a it's a Bible Belt tearjerker. It's a father and son redemption story based upon uh, this 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 man that picks up the Bible and has never read it before and becomes mm. a phenomenal preacher. Hmm. Um, some of the dialogue in the opening scenes is where he starts preaching, 
and I wish I could remember some of the lines, but the lines are based upon Dylan lyrics and Johnny Cash lyrics. Uh, nice. You know, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about the, the way he says me. that, um, he uses that, and the audience are just caught in this rapture. And eventually he gets hooked up with a couple of carnies that teach him how to heal, uh, even though he doesn't, of course. And he goes down this really, really bad path, and his 12-year-old son is always going, Dad, Dad, number one, you've never read the Bible. You're not good at this. And what are you doing? This is not right. This is not ethical. This is not moral. And he's always pulling back on him. But eventually his son gets sucked into the money mm. also. And then the son finally goes, oh, no, no, no pulls him back and it's a father done son redemption story good ending uh and this is a thing where the father at the very end goes i really kind of like this bible thing i'm going to go out and continue doing what i'm doing but i'm not going to take any money for it hmm. so the bible belters should just love this shit and it's uh richard later who wrote it is phenomenal writer uh done a lot of um uh, no f Hollywood films, but he's done a lot of made-for-TV films, mm -hmm. and this is right up his alley. And uh, uh, what is the status of this? Is the script done? The script's done uh, right now. We just went out uh, with a tone book. I was going to show you the tone book because you were talking about the tone book. Yeah. How do you say the tone of the film? <clears throat> yeah. Rather than you know, here's the lookbook. The lookbook is here's the synopsis. Here's the players. Right. Here's the marketing strategy and all this kind of stuff, like Being a business plan. Uh, but we wrote a tone book. Uh, the director is Bo Welch. Bo Welch uh, was the art director for Matrix, art director for Color Purple, art director for. Uh, he's been nominated four times for an Oscar. So he's got no credentials, in other words. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. But he's the director, and he wrote this tone book. And I wanted to show it to you on my laptop, but I couldn't find it. Uh, is it in text or is it in photos? No, photos. Okay. It's photos. All West 70, Texas. Mm -hmm. It kind of It's kind of a cross between Paris, Texas, and uh, uh, it's, it, it, it's just a phenomenal look. Yeah. But anyway, I was going to show that to you, but it's an audio program. Yeah, Fuck It's like the mime we did the first podcast. just didn't go over well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yep. So anyway, that's what I'm working on right now, and uh, my highest priority is the tent. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we hope to raise the money in the next six months. Uh, being really nice to get a check tomorrow for six million, and then we just start production. And uh, probably, you know, if we if we had the check today, today's June first, let's say, probably get everything started by July first. Take us about a month and a half you know, six weeks for pre-production, then we'd be ready to shoot. So I have a question for you about raising the money like that. Do you go to people you know, or do you go to people who know people you know? I mean, how far All away of the from above. All of the anybody above. Anybody that you're... Yeah, and, uh, and I actually have a couple of guys I know that actually do this for a living. They oh. take a little percentage, but they actually go... Oh, this is a great product. This is a great product. Mm -hmm. uh, let me go out and see if I can find buyers for it. Right. Oh, okay. And uh, they're basically money finders. Yeah. So we're working through a few of those. We also go to all the big production companies that we know, and we've done that process. So lots of it's, feelers it's, went out over the last three, four weeks, <clears throat> and uh, we'll we'll see where we're at. I mean, um, you know, worse that can happen. 
is in 18 months and I lose the right, the film rights to this book. Oh, you have um, to use it in the, within yeah, that time to lose the I rights. might have to go back and re-up them. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually it's about, for this book, it's around, I'm looking at this, my iPad. But, <laughs> Thank for, you. This, for this book, little it's... action a, line there. Yeah, like, yeah, you didn't see that, did you? Um, <laughs> Uh, for this book, it's around five to ten thousand dollars for every year. Huh. So, you just out of curiosity, uh, do you find yourself in a situation where, uh, let's postulate, you pull up three and a half million for it? No. Then you just never go through with the. No, the deal, it, right? if, we, if we don't get five and a half, at a minimum of five and a half, we don't do it. Right, and that's no. how it works. Yeah, yeah. right. right. Uh, the, the problem is, is that if if somebody gave me a check for 4 million today even 5 million today i would be hard pressed to be able to put together a package right. to, you got a problem you're shooting with the teenage boy right and he's one of the stars mm-hmm. and he's in almost every scene so there's a problem because anybody under 18 years of age there's very strict labor laws oh, okay. in the film industry mm-hmm. so you can only shoot an eight-hour day with him. Oh, okay. And if he's in almost every scene, and you can't shoot over eight hours, you can only probably do about three pages a day. If I can translate, so, you were suggesting a, you might be able to get more out of the money if you could shoot longer days, and you can't because there's a team. Yeah. And, or you and because you need to shoot more days, right. <laughs> you got to have more money. Understood. Yeah, yeah. I get you. Right. Yeah, you know, the crew per day is hundred to $150,000. <clears> Just, you know, it adds up. Right. Sure. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, so that's how it goes. You you have a target number that you're going to try to go for. Try yeah, to I'm a producer on this right. film, so the producer right. has to know all the I can take from here and give to there, you right. know, that kind of mm-hmm. shit. And, right. But there's so little. You got some common set of rules and laws that you can't. So just to let you know, uh, we're increasing the age of this kid to 14. Right. And there's a yeah. lot of 18 year old actors that, that look 14. 14. Yeah. 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 Understood. <laughs> right, right, right. right. So that's, we look at. I looked 14 a couple of years ago. You still look 14. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I don't think you ever looked 14 decades. You were yeah. six and you looked 25, right? <laughs> oh, well, I can play that. But thing. that's what I wake up in the morning thinking about. Right, right, right. right. So uh, I'm down in Boston tomorrow talking to. To one of the money finders. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Wonderful. Well, that's an unheralded uh, uh, part of making movies happen. All that work that goes in up front that nobody ever sees, nobody even knows about that works on the film, like the actors and so on. They just show up and they're they're there. With yeah, the, I can see. Twenty years project. ago, this was completely not sexy, but in today's you know reality age, it's probably as fascinating as I'm sure not this script, but a lot of the scripts that you know are out there are probably just you know. Not that exciting, right? It's probably just as exciting to talk about how it actually goes down. Well, all the people making movies out there, I think there's many people out there writing scripts and screenplays because anytime people enjoy something, and especially if it's done well, they look at it and they go, oh, that looks easy, I could do that. Oh, that's true. And it's like having a great juggler who makes it look easy. You go, oh, shit, I can do that. I go, I'm going to practice. And that's part of the magic of it, but at the same time, it brings a lot of people in who uh, clutter, shall we say, the... uh, well, I mean, I, I'd like to believe that a good art is kind of shines its own light. It, it, that is true. I mean, you know, anybody could, you know, buy a canvas for $5 and buy some oil paint for another $5 and a brush or two and, yep, and be an create artist. a Picasso. Yeah. But <laughs> it's, you know, it's it, the film industry today is so 
fascinating. I, you know, when I left California because I fell in love with this woman and moved to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, I thought, well, I'm coming into this void. And, uh, you know, my first. Everybody thinks that. Yeah, it really. I did. And, they were going to uh, name it Void, New Hampshire. But, uh, yeah, the Void State. It's on the sign when you drive in. Yeah, live free or void. Uh, and, A lot of banks here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I came into town, one of the first guys I met is Mark Dole, and he's just a phenomenal character. And he I, he introduced me to, like, 100 filmmakers within the first couple of months, and I just fell in love. And granted, I'm not doing $20 million films or $5 million films. I'm doing zero-budget films and $1,000 films, but I'm having a blast. Yeah, And these guys, some of these filmmakers, some of these filmmakers out here are quite talented. It's a different world, too, with being creative in collaborative situations, collaborative business. Mm -hmm. I mean, I live in Durham, New Hampshire, and some of the stuff that I've worked on is very successful. I've Mm -hmm. been lucky to be called. There's no way... 15, 20 years ago, somebody's going to call some guy from Durham, New Hampshire to do the score to uh, a, a large project. It's just well, the, the way digital a lot. Stuff. Well, it's the internet. I mean, yeah. it's the internet and it's it's the post and then 2.0. Virtual. It's a virtual world now. Now it's easier to deal with someone on one level that has that sort of, you know, bureau handled all by themselves. You know, mm. we just... We're going to pass the... And they're, they're dialogue, uh, you know, uh, companies. There's a place up in Montreal. You know, you're just going to handle it, you know? And I, the best... Some of those... I think the best collaboration there are these these people who have that home base. Someone like me, I'll get on a plane. I'll fly out. I'll meet the team. I'll see this stuff. Get the connection. Make that personal connection. Set it all up. And they just get out of everybody's hair, you know? And I'm going to do the work there. They're going to come fly back in again. And, you know... And I think that kind of relationship just wasn't on the table 20 years ago as it much. Wasn't. It wasn't. And so, yeah, there's not much you can't do with the exception of literally getting, you know, the people into the same room. That's kind of difficult. But, you know. Well, if uh, just uh, just checking and reading this uh, out loud and, if, and when the po- if, if, when the podcast goes uh, goes uh, goes public. We don't have a, it's not a problem for you about reading this. I own the motherfucker. Yeah, Fuck but it. I meant as far as, <laughs> as far as you want to you want to get at least part of it done. Or yeah, know. let's uh, let's, uh, let's. How, do, how does this little. work? Uh, well, we'll just. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you how it works. It's a cold. Those read. guys go off, and then I try to figure out what I'm going to do. And the, me scrambling is part of the comedy of the podcast. Yes. Because I'm true. not actually an actor. Well, mercifully, we've skipped the improv. <laughs> well, so you don't have to be an actor for a read. Right. And the best part is yeah. where, I, where, I'm, where I really seriously think I'm doing a good job. <laughs> when I go like this. Oh, it's great. It's just great. It's great. Well, um, as far as characters and this and that, I mean, we just kind of jump in. You know I mean, what? It's, again, Jesus, very informal. What do you mean you just kind of jump in? Share? Well, uh, if you if you as you're the person who knows this, so if you want to assign somebody a particular character, that Dennis, you, know, you should just write. Come on. Well, I don't know. You're I don't the know man. the characters. I usually read the well, action. Well, okay. Just because I know it. Better, let me let me glance at it real quick. Than I do, so maybe he should read the action lines to begin yes, with. Yes, you should. I'll read the action lines. That's, yeah. that's absolutely no problem. Um, Scrolling through. Yeah, and obviously well, there's no, no, unfortunately, no ladies with us today. So lady parts will be read by men, just like in the 1500s, just like in Greek times too. Yeah. 
Yes, and then, then as well. Except in Elizabethan times, that was they finally decided after that that it was better to have ladies playing ladies. After okay, uh, Corey and Elgin. Uh, you read Corey all, all the way Corey. through. He's the star. Okay. He's, He's the star! <laughs> and then, all right. right! Right now, you'll read Elgin, but eventually you'll read uh, uh, Stephen, which is the son. All right. Okay. Now, Corey, what's... Uh, uh, he's is typecasting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Co- Corey, uh, Corey is looking... Uh, Corey is the father of, of uh, Stephen. Okay. Stephen's 12 years old in we this script. We can do that. And, um, and, I remember Dilla 12. And... Uh, <laughs> You're, that when you're, you're broke, you work in a diner. Hey, I can identify with that. You're broke, <laughs> you live in a diner, and you've just, uh, you'll be fired here in the first couple of scenes. Oh, what? And then, <laughs> uh, and then you will do anything. Uh, Stephen's birthday is that day, and uh, you're coming home from a West Texas diner. You're out in the middle of Dust Bowl, Texas. All right, I've been there. And, um, and um, uh, uh, I will have... Um, Duncan. Mr. Duncan, read Elgin. Okay. Uh, Chase is I'll normalizing read. this. Great. You point okay. at me, and I will okay. say where... <laughs> yeah. You want me to read all of the action? Yeah. Okay. We usually do. Okay. Um, and, the, and the lead lines and all that stuff, too. So. Okay. Um, scene one. Uh, external West Texas Day, June 1971. Establishing. Which, by the way, just as a note, yeah, I hate these things in scripts. So when I read them, I usually say to the screenwriter, "We know it's establishing. Take the fucker out of it." <laughs> yeah, okay. Good point. Uh, okay, I'm glad because I don't use those now. I feel vindicated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, the fade in. You know why? Yeah. Please tell me why. Well, you know, some some won't, some uh, like places won't accept it if you don't have fade in and fade out. No, some places that. won't accept it if they're if in. you do have it. Most places. <laughs> That's won't. what's been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, same one. The viciously hot West Texas flatland feature small, struggling town stuck in time, scattered across hundreds of miles of sun-baked landscape that is emblematic of the lives that are lived here. Hard, unforgiving, unrelenting, with no respite from the heat. Scene two. I'm not going to read the super. Scene two. Fuck the super. (laughs) Juniper, Texas. Elgin's Grill. Day. Main Street battles the elements in its own daily grind. On a tired corner, Elgin's Grill hangs by a thread. Scene three. Internal. Elgin's Grill. Day. Maybe it's been here 40 years. Swiveling stools at the counter. Pie under glass. Jukeboxes in the booths. Everything's worn out. Country music plays. A half a dozen customers drink black coffee, eat late lunches. Corey fries burgers at the grill. Even with the sweat, you're doing the action here. Okay. Wow. Even with the Dennis sweat and grease, so you say. <laughs> and Dennis Quaid. Was great. You should have been there. <laughs> and his fate and the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's cowboy handsome. You are a cowboy handsome. Uh, with a devastating <laughs> smile a cow, he's <laughs> and intense eyes. There is something charismatic about him. Of course. Even here. Even now. Even slugging. He's working hard back there, cooking, prepping, cleaning, pushing through the high heat and smoke from the grill. He puts a plate together, turns, and serves a regular at the counter, a rancher, John. Here you go, John. I put some extra fries on there. Don't tell Elgin. 
He says it loud enough for Elgin, the owner, hands in the open register at the end of the counter to catch on. Everyone hears it, smiles. It's a running gag, and they like it. They like Corey. He's easy with people, good-natured and high-spirited, and with just the right amount of West Texas uh, wise-ass mixed in. Corey smiles at Elgin, who nods that he gets it too, but Elgin's sense of humor is suspended today, maybe for longer than just today. So Corey can have a dialect too, huh? Yeah. In fact, I forgot uh, about that. I should have put that in there, you know. <laughs> well, it's West Texas, 1970. West Texas, 19 and 70. Uh, did you I give you Elgin? Well. Uh, yeah, I think I gave it to him. Yeah, yeah. you're going to read Elgin. Just so that you know, ahead of time. I don't understand dialect very much. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> don't worry about Just make it. something up there, buddy. <laughs> that was good. Sometimes if you do it too much, it becomes overbearing. Oh, really? You're not really listening to the words. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah. Especially if they all do British accents. Yeah. It takes over. British. People walk out. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I can tell you a story about this. Go ahead. Can, can we, should we, we interject of course, this? Yeah. Yes. There, there, was a, there was a play written, oh, I'm going to guess 2005, 2006. It's called W. W, yeah. Do you, do you know that play? That. Yeah. Sounds like your kind of play there, Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> it was a story of George W.'s and um, oh, I can't remember the, the Prime Minister now from the UK. Uh, Blair. Thatcher Blair. Blair. Okay. Tony Blair. It was a play about their relationship. And Kitty and I saw, because we wanted to see it so bad, because mm. we're such W fans. <laughs> um, that was a joke. Uh, but, but anyway, we wanted to see it so bad, and it was playing in the West End in London. And I would say the audience was 70% British and 30% American. Mm-hmm. And the jokes, it was so funny to tell what was an inside American joke and an inside British joke. (laughs) Because when the inside British jokes come up, they howled with laughter, and we were going, what? What was funny about that? And then when the inside W jokes would come up, whether it was Barbara Bush or whatever, or his dog, I forget his dog's name now, uh, and it was like we would laugh and howl with laughter, and they would be going, what are they laughing about? It was a funny play in the fact that it was... So diverse, yeah. and, and then you saw it in London. I saw it in London, yeah. But, I mean, that's in the U.S. Yeah. If I'd have seen it in the U.S., yeah. it'd have been almost one hundred percent American. That's so, it. you're hitting on my favorite thing, and it's like, what time is it? Is, it funny? is this funny or not? Well, the answer is, what time is it? Where am I? Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. That's great. Well, think about how yeah. many things don't age well in film. Right. Well, you know, some yeah. films that you look at now, whether it be Hitchcock or whomever, or Orson Welles, and you go, they just didn't age well. It's become trite. Yeah. yeah. Some of the things become trite. We just watched The Man in the White Suit with Alec Guinness the other night, and that was a great film, and it made a lot of wonderful uh, social comments about about uh, capitalism and labor and all those things together. It was well done. It was beautifully shot. It was amazing. You know, we, yeah. were, we were impressed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Scene four. Yeah. <laughs> Corey is still at the grill. Uh, internal Elgin's Grill Day. Empty now, sadly so. Elgin and Corey sit at a back booth. A photo of President Dick Nixon hangs on the wall beside the jukebox. A photo of Johnny Cash hangs on the other side. 
Did I miss anything about Elgin? Do we know anything else about him? I'm just going going after him. You, you, you own this grill, and you're gonna. Oh, no, I understand what I'm about to do, right? Yeah, yeah right, you're, right. you're gonna fire him. Cool, right? And you don't want to fire him, but yeah, you okay. gotta fire him. Right. And, and, no, and, and the lines, right. the lines say it for yourself. Okay, yeah. please, I, I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry, Corey. Ain't nothing personal. I want you to know that you've been a good cook, mm. but last one hired, first one fired. Mm. That's all the world works. He means it. Nothing personal. He likes Corey, same as everyone else. But life is life. Corey takes it that way. Still, it hurts. He needs the money. Can you give me two more weeks, Elgin? I can't even give you two days. External. Elgin's Grill. Day. Corey exits the diner into the afternoon heat. He wears faded blue sheen, blue sheens, uh, <laughs> Charlie cowboy sheens. boots, <laughs> Charlie sheens, and a, a sleeveless t-shirt that shows he's a working man, fit, wiry, hard. He That's me. A, <laughs> I was just going to say, boy, did I typecast oh, this. Well, yeah. Fit, uh, well, we <laughs> he puts a baseball cap on his head, takes a disappointed breath that he can't shake, and walks down Main Street. External, scene six, external Salvation Army thrift store. Clothing, kitchen gear, bedding, etc. Scene seven, internal Salvation Army thrift store. Corey carries a pair. Who wants to read Dorothy? I'll do it. thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, you look more female than all we're, of we're, us. We're, we're, only using <laughs> all we're, we're not right. sexist or anything, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, internal Salvation Army thrift store. <clears throat> Corey carries a pair of used but serviceable Converse sneakers to the counter. Too small for him. They're clearly for someone else. The elderly lady at the register, Dorothy Smiles, checks the price. Well, now let's see. That'll be... $1.35. He holds her eyes for a moment, then digs into his pocket, pulls out change, counts it in his hand, puts it on the counter. Dorothy adds it up, coin by coin. It's $1.35. They share a look. Times are tough in West Texas, and she scoops up the money. Uh, you're Stephen. Uh, why don't you read Jim? Sure. Okay. Um, scene 8, Juniper Middle School. The small middle school melts in the sun. The sign board out front says, Have a nice summer. See you in September. Kids and grown-ups grateful to close shop as the heat swallows everything. Take off for vacation. Stephen, 12, Corey's son, blessed with the rugged good looks of his father, walks his bike besides a buddy, Jim. You going anywhere? No place special. Probably hang around with my dad, play baseball. Maybe go to Houston and see a game. That's about it. They come to the road. Stephen climbs on his bike. It's old and used up. I'm going to Galveston with my mom. Stephen nods. But something about Jim going away with his mother makes him pause for a hard second. Yeah, that's good. Well, I guess I'll see you. Hey, Stephen. Have a good summer. Stephen waves without turning around. It looks like he has to ride 100 miles to get home. Scene 9. Trailer Park. Disparate trailers decaying in the sun, some with canvas-covered patios, shading beat-up barnwood picnic tables and mismatched dime store lawn chairs are set around a dirt yard dotted with dying flower beds and busted fountains. I like the way you didn't use commas between all those things, like they were all piled together. (laughs) (laughs) Corey pulls his 62 Chevy half-ton into the park and rolls it up to a particularly wasted trailer. 
The shitty has salt yeah, rods so bad you can read through it. <laughs> Steven's bike is on the ground near the door. Corey parks the truck, climbs out, and heads to the trailer. He carries a plain brown paper bag up to the picnic table under the canvas. Overhang, set two baseball clubs. He sees them, stops, and smiles. He walks to the table, sets, lifts one of the gloves. Steven is written on the inside. There is a ball in it. He pounds the ball into the glove once, twice again. Some of the leather stitching is looser than he likes it. He puts the ball down and works on the glove. His hands are strong and sure. His eyes focused. His shoulders relaxed. Even his in, in this decomposing trailer park, in the shadow of his lost job at Elgin's, working on Steven's glove is for this quiet moment all that matters. Hey, Dad. Steven stands in the trailer just... The screen door between him and the world, Corey looks up and smiles. Did you leave these out here? Go ahead, Stephen. I was waiting for you, then I got hot. Uh, What are you doing? Pocket was a little loose. Go on. Uh, Last day of school. Last Last day of school? Last day. Anybody give you anything? No. Well, then it's up to me. Happy birthday, son. Thanks, Dad. Thanks. Uh, want to try them out? Uh, how do they uh, How do they feel? Okay, cut. Uh, should I Should I read some of this action? Do I you want so, that yeah. put in there? Yeah, I think so. Because it's hard. For, it'd be hard for them to know what's going on. Because yeah, well, we found that you have to kind of slalom between it. Sometimes you don't. But like when he yeah. gives them the 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 bag and he opens. Yeah, I was it up. thinking yeah. some of these actions are really kind of necessary yeah. to visualize. It. Yeah, because there's no there's no visual for them. Right, like yeah. we don't know what he gave them. Yeah, right. Let's go back to. Uh, uh, You're the fucking director on this now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just take he's, over? He's, he's you that role. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move the lights over here. <laughs> on the lunch. Look, this whole baseball glove thing, it's just bullshit. Let's bring it about a pogo stick. Yeah, they love hockey in West Texas, don't they? I'd like to bring in my version. I rewrote this. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, well, let's just go back to the middle of page four where it says, Hey, Dad. Okay. Hmm. Hey, yeah. Dad. Stephen stands in the trailer, just the screen door between him and the world. Corey looks up and smiles. <laughs> Did you leave these out here? Stephen nods, exit the trailer, moves to the table. I was waiting for you. Then I got hot. Well, what are you doing? Pocket was a little loose. He ties the last knot, then looks at Stephen. They hold each other's eyes. An entire conversation passes between them in that moment. Unspoken words that define an unbreakable bond. Last day of school? Last day. Anybody give you anything? No. Well, then it's up to me. He gestures at the brown paper bag on the table. Stephen smiles, takes the bag, removes the Salvation Army converse, and his face lights up. Happy birthday, son. Thanks, Dad. Thanks. Corey puts Stephen's glove on the table, lifts his glove, pounds the ball into it, and looks at the converse. Want to try them out? They share a great smile, and Stephen puts the birthday sneakers on. Corey stands, moved out of the shade. Stephen grabs his glove, runs about 60 feet down the dirt. They throw and catch in familiar fashion. They've only done this a million times together. How do they feel? Good. Really good. Corey smiles. Gets down in a catcher's crouch. Stephen goes into his windup, whips it in for a strike. Did you get the mail? Bills I can't pay. Mom sent me a card? It's a hard question for Corey. Uh, no. 
and a hard answer for Stephen, who fights off disappointment, keeps throwing and catching. And I don't want to talk about that. I know. I, I just thought four years, maybe that was enough time. Corey doesn't answer, just stands and holds the ball, a gesture that says loud and clear, no more. Stephen gets the message. Corey nods and they throw it back and forth, letting those last words burn away in the heat. Scene 10, trailer, main room. As seedy inside as out, but lived in at the same time. What few things they own make it as much a home as it can be. Stephen sits at the dining room table, reading a newspaper, sports section, checking the box scores, drinking a can of soda. I don't think it's that bad. Corey cooks dinner in the cramped kitchen. He empties a half bottle of ketchup into a small pot, fills the rest of the pot with water, stirs it, heats it at a low flame. Ketchup soup. He's got two white bread grilled cheese sandwiches frying in a pan on the other burner. You just got a pair of Salvation Army sneakers for your 12th birthday. You don't think that's bad? You'll get another job. For minimum wage. I can't even pay the rent on this trailer at that rate. There's no decent work here. Anywhere. None. Corey puts the sandwiches on the table, goes back to the stove, pours two bowls of the soup, puts them on the table too. He opens the small fridge, grabs himself a can of cheap beer, and pops it open. I'm sick of being poor. We're not poor. We've got money. Not really. Didn't Elgin pay you? Back rent on the trailer. Gone before it was in my pocket. We got 50 bucks between us and flat broke. Corey sets. Eats with his son. You always say that. Mm. Corey nods, but his face is down. His eyes are sad in a way Stephen has never seen before. This time, it's true. They eat for a moment, Stephen thinking, watching his father. Then... I can work. Corey looks at his son. What can you do? Pitch. Corey smiles. For who? Astros. I'm better than Blazing Game. Corey laughs. Blazing Game. game. (laughs) Corey laughs. Stephen laughs too, happy and relieved to cheer up his dad. You're not worse, that's for sure. They laugh some more, then eat again. The mood in the trailer lifted. I might die like them. (laughs) (laughs) You're not worse, that's for sure. They they laugh some more than... You're not worse, (laughs) that's for sure. They're (laughs) not worse. (laughs) They're not worse. One of of my favorite comedians is Kathleen Madigan, and she talks about the South. Uh She goes, would you hurry up? I've got a decade. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've seen that, yeah. (laughs) They laugh some more than eat again. The mood in the trailer lifted. Then Stephen thinks of something that just might help. Doesn't that roofer O'Malley, doesn't he owe you money? Holy <laughs> fuck, what's <laughs> that? <laughs> you never uh, actually back been to this house. <laughs> 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 the New Englander doing you're this. You're down there. Well, uh, it's probably not worth it. <laughs> okay, you're O'Malley. Back to O'Malley, O'Malley right? Okay. You're O'Malley. Uh, scene 11. Oh, Corey looks at him. Blah, blah, blah. Scene 11. O'Malley's Place Day. The next morning, by the way. O'Malley's business consists of a rusting metal warehouse surrounded by industrial scrap, old trucks, junk cars, and all kinds of unrecognizable roofing materials. Corey and Stephen walk across the yard with O'Malley, an Irishman from Ireland. From Ireland. Just practice like this. <laughs> no. It, luckily, it's an Irishman from Italy. Yeah. <laughs> so he has a potato. 
<laughs> who came to West Texas for a reason he long ago intentionally forgot. Through Jersey. <laughs> I, I don't have your money. I did the work. Oh, I know you did. You owe me $400. When I get paid, you get paid. I can't wait, O'Malley. O'Malley stops, gestures around his corroding kingdom, proof positive the debilitating status quo. We're all waiting, Corey. The whole blasted country is waiting for the one guy at the top to pay what he owes. He turns to walk again, but Corey grabs his arm, stops him. That's not good enough this time. I need the money. O'Malley looks down at Corey's hand in his arm, then into Corey's eyes. Corey lets the seriousness of the moment speak for itself, then releases O'Malley's arm. O'Malley takes a break, settles on a solution. I'll give you the tent. He walks through the warehouse. Corey and Stephen follow. What? It's an army tent. They used it for assembling missiles somewhere overseas a few world wars ago. Moments later, O'Malley's warehouse, scene 12. More rust and clutter, roofing gear in various stages of disrepair. Another immobilized truck. Bright shafts of light break in through gaps in the sheet metal structure. O'Malley, Corey, and Stephen open and enter through a huge overhead door that spills in daylight. I got it from a man in Brockton who couldn't pay me for what he owed. That's after I did the work. It's worth about, I don't know, 400 I'll give you that if I can find the damn thing. They reach a corner of the warehouse, move stuff out of the way. Big things, small things, unrecognizable tools and debris. Endless salvage. Corey and Stephen help. And then there it is, folded up and tied with rope. The tent. It's big and long and heavy and cumbersome. Guy gave it to me, bought it from a traveling preacher who made money in Louisiana, sold it, and bought himself a bigger tent. It holds a hundred people or more and comes with a string of lights and a thermometer. Take it or leave it. Corey and Stephen stare at it. No idea what to say. A thermometer? Gets hot in the sun, boy. And they didn't want no missiles blowing up. Silence. They just look at it. Missiles blow up when it's hot? How the hell do I know? He walks away, heads toward the open overhead door. Corey stares at the tent and says mostly to himself, but loud enough for O'Malley to hear. What am I supposed to do with it? O'Malley doesn't answer, just keeps going. Corey turns to him, calls out again, louder this time, and aimed right at the roofer. What am I going to do with the tent? O'Malley, go ahead. Sell it to somebody else. O'Malley's place later. The tent is loaded into the back of the rusted Chevy half-ton. It sticks out four feet beyond the truck bed. Corey ties it down, tossing a rope from his side of the truck to Stephen on the other side. Stephen catches the rope, watches Corey come around the truck, take the rope, kneel down, secure it. He works in silence until... You okay? Thinking. What? Corey doesn't answer. When he has it all tied down, he stands, stares at the tent as if the germ of an idea has occurred to him taken an unclear shape in his mind, as if he can't see it yet, can only feel its arrival. Dad, what? Corey doesn't respond. He moves back around the truck, checking all the ropes, working on that thought. Dad. They're on opposite sides of the Chevy. Corey opens his door, finds Stephen's eyes. Let's go. Where? Corey gets in the truck without answering, still thinking. Stephen waits a moment, then opens his door and climbs in beside his father. Corey starts the truck. I'm going to skip scene 14. 
Scene 15, two-lane blacktop. A two-lane blacktop stretches for hundreds of flat-ass floor miles in both directions. Mm. I said ass rather than ass. Yeah, I liked it better that way. <laughs> flat-ass floor miles. The Chevy rolls on. I got an idea about the tent. How we can make some money. Inside, the Chevy half-ton. Papers, soda cans, trash, tools, clutter. Steven stares out the window. Corey straight, stares straight ahead, finally. Who you can sell it to? No. Then what? What he said, O'Malley, about the first guy who owned it. Steven shakes his head, oh, no, no idea what his father is talking about. He was a preacher. So? So I'm thinking we're going to help people. Go on. Help them what? We're going to help them find, you know, God. God? There are people out there by the thousands having trouble finding God. We're going to help them. How? I'm going to preach. Preach? That's right. Stephen shakes his head, half holding on to the idea that Corey is kidding, half trying to stop this in its tracks. On the side of the road is a motel. That's seen trucks fly by for 50 years. Corey pulls the truck into the parking lot, parks down the row of rooms from the office. This is a bad idea, Dad. You got a better one? Of all the ideas, this one's the worst. Because I don't. You don't go to church. You've never been to church. My grandfather took me to tent sermons. We could do this. We don't even have a Bible. Corey smiles, turns off the engine, gets out of the <clears throat> truck, heads for the office. Stephen watches him go, refusing to wrap his mind around this. I got family coming from out of town for a reunion. You're Georgette, by the okay. way. Looks just like... Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, could you pull your uh, skirt up just a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> what summer? kind of an audition is this? <laughs> if I pull these jeans up anymore, you're going to see some camel toe. <laughs> In, internal motel office, moments later. Coffee pot for the guest. A newspaper or two, a sad and sorry plant in the corner. Corey stands across the counter from Georgette, late 60s. The motel woman who's seen it all before. The doorway to her living quarters is behind her. The door is open. Uh, you're up there, Cor. Sorry, I was taking a leak. <laughs> I was hoping it would be okay for me to see a room before they got here. Georgette leans forward, looks out the front plate glass window as far down the row of row rooms as she can. Got a girlfriend hiding in a car somewhere? No, ma'am. Just want to look at a room for my relatives. Who are coming from out of town? Mm. Corey nods. She takes a key off the rack. Roommate hands it to him over the counter. He takes it, but she doesn't let go. They're both holding it. You ain't back with this key in five minutes. I'll send Lamar down to find out why. Trust me, mister, Lamar is someone you do not want to meet. Five minutes, yes, ma'am. She lets go of the room key. Corey smiles and exits the office. Georgette looks behind her. A big, nasty Rottweiler stands in the doorway, gazing up at her. What are you looking at, Lamar? Lamar. Scene 18 <laughs> is internal motel room 8. Plain, simple, and going to seed. Twin beds separated. Favorite <laughs> <laughs> line so far. <laughs> Plain, simple, and going to see. <laughs> Twin beds separated by a night table with a lamp and an alarm clock. The night table drawer is open. Corey, holding the Bible, sits on one bed facing Stephen, who sits on the other. You can't be serious. There's a pile of wood planks they're getting rid of behind the hardware store in Riley. 
We could take them, nail them to the boxes, and make benches. For what? The flock. So they got something to sit on when they come to watch me preach. <laughs> the flock? And I can build a pulpit out of plywood with a cross on it. And a stand to make me higher. You got to be higher than your flock to make them look up. Up where? I got that dark suit from Dallas. I'll make a, a white collar out of cardboard. I don't think you can do that. I'll slick my hair back, hold this Bible, and we'll be in business. We will? We got the tent, we got the benches, we got the pulpit, got the dark suit, white collar, we got the Bible. But I can't do it alone. I need your help. So what do you think? You gonna help me? They hold each other's eyes, then Stephen takes a breath that sounds like his last one before everything changes. I guess so. Then, this is it. Internal trailer, Stephen's room. Small and shabby like the rest of the trailer, but a room of his own. Stephen is in bed, his door shut, a small lamp beside him, the only light. He's surrounded by Little League trophies, Astro's box scores taped to the walls, his glove, his bat, leftover school box, books, comic books, clothes that need washing. He's shifting through the contents of a shoebox filled with important possessions, coined from other countries, Astro's ticket stubs, first place medals, letters, and a photograph of Rose, his mother. She's holding him when he was a baby, so 12 years ago, when she was 30, the picture isn't in great shape, but good enough to see that she was stunning. Though she doesn't look happy, she looks like trouble. He looks at the picture of Rose and her baby for a long moment. It's not sadness in his eyes exactly, it's longing. He puts the photo back in the shoebox and turns out the light. Trailer day. Next morning, Corey builds benches out of discarded planks, nailing them to crates he's got out of grocery store trash bins. He has his shirt off and sweats, buckles as he pounds nails. Just boy, please don't take your shirt off. I'm a method. Nearby, Stephen paints a wooden cross hammered to the front of the plywood pulpit, a deep, rich red. Contrary to Corey, he works without purpose, as if every half-hearted brushstroke were another question. We're going to have to pick one subject and stick to it, at least until we get a handle on this thing. So what's a good subject? What do you mean? To preach. What's a good one? How about lying? <laughs> lying. <laughs> or stealing, you know, like where you steal a Bible and lie about being a preacher? You feel that way about it? Stephen shrugs, doesn't know, doesn't want to disappoint him, but still. I don't know how I feel. Corey puts his hammer down, moves to the picnic table under the ratty canvas overhang, attached to the trailer on one side and to thin wooden poles on the other. He sits at the table, lifts one of two cold cans of soda, holds it to the back of his neck. You said you'd help me. I am helping you. I've been watching these guys on television, these preachers. You think they're all sincere? I don't know what they think. They do it for the money, but that doesn't mean it's all bad. If we do it for the money, but we say good things, what's wrong with that? We get money, they get something, we all come out ahead. But we don't know anything. We don't believe that stuff. It's, it's all a lie. But a good lie. Now, we're doing it for a good reason, right? Right. We get some money, and they get some preaching. Everybody wins. He gestures at the pulpit, smiles. Stephen takes another drink. They move to the pulpit, lifts the brush. 
Trailer day. Later that afternoon, Corey and Stephen load eight benches into the halftone. The plywood pulpit with its red cross, it's already in the back of the truck with the tent, which has been moved all the way to one side. So, give me a subject, something I can really get my teeth into. They lift a bench half into the truck bed, then Corey climbs up, takes it the rest of the way, stacks it on the other benches. What's wrong with lying and stealing, like I said? Eh, There's not enough to it. That's a good start, but it needs to be filled out. Something specific about sins, sex maybe, or, or killing like that. He jumps out of the truck, they go for another bench. Talk about somebody who lies about killing. I like that. I'll work on that angle. Somebody who lies about killing. External trailer. Stephen and Corey eat dinner at the picnic table. White bread, peanut butter sandwiches, potato chips, canned soda. Corey flips through the Bible while he eats. So, how do you find stuff in here? I don't know. I've, I've never read it before. Yeah, it makes two of us. Across the way, an elderly couple drink beer and watch television under the canvas overhang. The power cord runs from the TV up through an open window and into their trailer. Their grandchildren look at the rusted Chevy, park with the mysterious items, then run back to their grandparents when they are scolded for snooping around. Stephen watches the children gawk at the truck, point at the plywood pulpit, and laugh. Where are we going? What? The first town. Where are we going to start? Uh, I was thinking the same thing. Not too far. We don't have much money for gas, and truck's on its last legs. Uh, somewhere in here, inside a, a hundred-mile circle. Uh, there. Let's go there. Castle, Texas. Any special reasons? Mm, all right, well, all right, that's it. I'll work on my sermon, and we'll go day after tomorrow. He heads for the trailer. Stephen looks at the Bible, still on the table, apparently not part of the sermon writing process. Then at Castle, now marked on the map, and says to himself, Because it might be far enough that I'll never see anybody who lives there again. <laughs> External Castle, Texas, day, early morning. The Chevy, preaching gear in the back, drives through Castle, a town described by two words, flat and hot. I don't know. There aren't many people here. Could be hard to find a flock. Good. What? Uh, they live on ranches. It'll be fine. At the end of the main street is an open space, all dirt and scrub grass, a park of sorts with an old playground. Chevy pulls into the park and stops in the open area. Corey and Stephen climb out of the truck, shake, shake off the 100-mile drive, move to the back, untie the ropes, and unload the tent. It's heavy as heck and unwieldy, and getting it off the truck is a real wrestling match. Oh, we should have set it up one time before we left. Yeah, we'll figure it out. If we ever get it off the truck. Just then, another pickup pulls into the park and stops where they are. Two cowboys, Wes and Kenny, get out of the truck. What you doing? Flea market? Uh, we are uh, here to preach the word of God. Been close to two weeks since we had a tent preacher here. I'm sorry, I'm reading uh, both you of them both, again. Yeah, yeah. What faith are you? Faith? Baptist, evangelical missionary, rollers, what? Hmm, we are of God. We do not believe in different faiths. We're all one children. Now, if you boys would kindly help us with this traveling chapel, we'd appreciate it. Cowboys look at each other, then move to the Chevy, help haul the tent into the park. External Castle Park Day. 
Corey holding a stack of flyers, and Stephen shake hands with Wes and Kenny. The sun is higher, and so is the temperature. The men have sweated through their shirts. Corey hands each one a flyer, then the cowboys get in the truck and drive away. Corey and Stephen watch them disappear down the road, then turn and look at the tent. It stands in the... Thank you for that. The tent was 340 feet high <laughs> and six miles wide. <laughs> Amazing how it folded up. It, uh, that's a Cameron movie there, I think. <laughs> yeah. okay. It stands in the middle of a dirt field, 30 feet wide by 40 feet long. You were off by your dimensions. I know. Uh, no, <laughs> you fucked up. That's what the director the was asking. You wanted cubits. Right, <laughs> it, right it like and six miles span. long and 340 feet high. <laughs> and then the hand of God was handing out over the top of it. The hand of God holds it up. That's yes, the only sir. thing holding this tent. There we go. You mean like Hemsworth. <laughs> it stands in the middle of the dirt field being held up by hands of God. 30 feet wide by 40 feet long, cubits beside. Faded army green holes across and, the top and, and the, the side. producer. He can change the lines <laughs> <laughs> for the missiles to stick out and big round openings on either end. And a leak. It's called ventilation. You could throw a basketball through the walls. The air movement will keep it cool when all the people pack in. Oh, right. Hey, there's tape in the truck. Put these up all over town. These flyers. What are you going to do? Uh, set up the benches, put the pulpit in place, and practice my preaching. Stephen watches Corey go, then looks at the handwritten flyers that say, Looking for God? Come find him tonight in the tent, 8 p.m. He takes a deep breath and then glances up at the sky. Please, God, don't let anybody come tonight. External Castle, Texas, early evening, light fading, <clears throat> heat refusing to let go. Castle is quiet, an entire town living in the slow lane. Yeah. Scene 26, Castle Park, early evening, benches in place, four on each side. Corey stands at the plywood pulpit waiting for a flock. Wearing his dark winter suit with the white cardboard collar soaked Ooh. through with perspiration. Stephen stands near the thermometer at the far end of the tent, which is gloomily lit by the sinking evening sun. Remind me next time, we need power for the lights. I don't think there's going to be a next time. Is it eight? One more minute. What's the temperature? Down to 96. Even those two cowboys didn't come. Is it eight? Yes. Sorry, Dad. I know you really wanted to. But before Stephen can finish the thought, two ancient, clattering pickups pull into the park and stop at the tent. Two men, close to 40, wearing bib overhauls and work shirts, sunburnt, beet red, four women, two wives, and two grandmothers wearing clean but tired print dresses, also sunburned, and nine sunburned children wearing tattered but clean clothes get out of the trucks. And Corey should say something like, son of a bitch. <laughs> Stephen should say, son of a bitch. <laughs> the flock sits on the rough plank benches. The flock. Stephen sets behind them. Corey stands at the pulpit. Even with his charismatic qualities, this is his first sermon, and he's nervous. Welcome to the house of God. What did he say? He said, welcome to the house of the Lord. You want to get loud on the good parts? <laughs> Corey nods, mm -hmm. eyes wide with uncertainty. The children are impatient, rambunctious, hyper. The other man thumps one into his seat. 
addresses Corey. You don't start preaching soon. I'm going to have to get the rope and tie them to the truck. Uh, come gather around, people. L- louder! Come gather around, people, wherever you roam, and admit that the waters around us have grown. What did he say? We're fixing for a flood, Mama. Lord have mercy. But we don't have to get drenched to the bone. If we can find the dry land of the Lord, then our salvation is at hand. If we don't, my friends, one and all, then it's a hard rain going to fall. He sweats a ton, hair dripping, unopened motel Bible in his hand, feet glued to the ground. Tonight I want to share with you the story of a fallen member of the flock, a man who did not go the way of God, a man who did not stay dry. What is he? He's going to tell us a story. This lost soul shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And then he lied about the crime. He killed a man and lied about it. Two sins for the price of one. Two sins with one stone. He pauses for dramatic effect. Some in the flock recognize the Johnny Cash addition to the sermon and smile welcoming the familiar. They like Johnny Cash. (laughs) This sinner who killed and lied He's stuck in Folsom Prison, where time keeps dragging on. (laughs) Tent night later, dark now, flat horizon stretching forever. Corey's Chevy parked behind the tent, the two ancient pickups parked in front. The moral of this is don't fall into the burning ring of fire, because you will go down, and the flames will go higher. What did he say? (laughs) Satan's all around, Mama. Heaven help us! Tent night later. Moonlight shines through the missile holes, giving the flock a silvery glow. Corey's hair is matted to his head. He is wringing wet. He hasn't moved two inches in any direction. His voice is hoarse from shouting. And so where you're bound, I can't tell. But goodbye is too sad a word, so I'll just say, fare thee well. Amen! He gestures at Stephen who hands a huge wicker basket to one of the men. Corey explains to the flock. For the offering, my friends. Uh, We'd like to end with a song. Song? Uh, 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 A hymn. Sorry. I'll do it. You guys straighten that out, will you? (laughs) (laughs) Cutting into my big part here. To fortify us to go back out amongst the sinners. Corey looks at Stephen. They're hymnless. A moment. Then Corey has a thought, addresses the grandmother. Why don't you read us in a hymn? I always make a deal that I am not singing. I always make a deal. And here you are. The grandmother leaps up. Right through ages. Yes, that would be. I honestly don't know the melody to this, she, guys. Seriously, if you know Rock it. of Ages, clap for me, bury myself in thee, we'll walk around. Thank you. She cuts him off, wails the lyrics, and with a stern look, demands that the others stand and join her. Clap for me. Yeah. Reprise. <laughs> Her family stands, sings off key. Corey and Stephen watch them, shell shocked. Tent later. The two ancient pickups drive off into the night, sunburned families fortified to live amongst the sinners. Later, Corey sets the platform that holds the pulpit, absolutely whipped. Stephen sets on the first bench. 
Now will you believe we can't do it? Corey says nothing. Stephen eases the blow. It's just that you don't really know how to do this, Dad. Corey notices the wicker basket on the bench near Stephen. He reaches for it, looks inside. It's nothing to be ashamed of. You just weren't meant to be a preacher. Corey looks up, smiles, suddenly energized. Look at this! He holds a handful of paper money, mostly ones, but some fives in the corner of a ten. He counts it. Ten, fifteen, eighteen, another ten. There's twenty-eight dollars here. You know how many burgers I had to fry to clear twenty-eight dollars? But we still didn't do very well at it. Are you kidding? We did great at it. Praise God. Praise God? Yeah, from whom all blessings flow. Hey, I like that. I think I'll work that into my next sermon. We're going to do this again? We're just getting started. Oh, good. Cut. I got to piss really, really bad. Yeah, that's part of the podcast. And we're, and we're 30... Oh, I'm sorry. Shit. <laughs> Maybe I have to shit. And I just said piss to make it easier. Um, Either way. But we're 30 minutes into the movie right now. All right. What do you think? Well, we can uh, break and pick it up next time. I like it so far. I'm with you. I'm happy to keep going, too. Whatever we keep going. It's it's six o'clock. I got to piss. I should get going. Uh, You want to pick this up next Tuesday? Please, let's do. That sounds great. Yeah, 30 What do you think so far? First 30 minutes. First 30 minutes? uh, You're in some characters? Well, I mean, I'm I'm laughing as much as because I usually have a deal about not singing, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Rock a I I don't like movies where I feel uncomfortable, which is all of them, because someone gets humiliated <laughs> or whatever, right? But you know what I'm saying? Once you're there and it's happening and you're into it, it's great. It's great. It's like holding right there. He's actually going to be fine, but you know it's going to be uncomfortable to watch, and I'm sure a great actor is going to just knock that shit out. I also really like the way the kid really doesn't have much, like, his lines aren't very meaty or whatever. He's basically yeah. just playing He's a little a kid. kid. Yeah, which means that's going to be a tough role. It's an honest dialogue role. Mm-hmm. Well, is, that, uh, is that what? Uh, tell me. The, well, to to for any kid to do well in a movie, they have to be real because everybody knows kids. Not everybody knows a drunk old man. Everybody knows kids. Yeah. And they have to be realistic, and that's one of the hardest roles to do. Look at uh, the kid in The Sixth Sense. Mm. Did such a phenomenal job right, right, as yeah. a kid that was just terrified, right. living <laughs> in terror all the time. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Haley? Haley Joel Osborne. Yeah, yeah. Haley Mills. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah, Haley Mills. Um, it's, it's so hard to do. Uh, when I... Number one, when I've directed... Uh, eight-year-olds before. I'll never do that again. Uh, I will... <laughs> never, I, Make them fuckers squirrel up before you direct them again. <laughs> it's, it's the hardest thing to do. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, some of these lines, oh, good, you know, we're going to do this again. I mean, they're just so... Uh, it's so... It, you know what it is? There's no sort of guile or cleverness. It's like, this is what this kid is thinking right yeah, now. He's not acting. He's like just... This is what, it's right on the face. You know, sometimes when I'm directing an actor that's having a problem with a line, I will just say, what are you saying? What is this line saying? It might be uh, 15 words or 20 words uh, of dialogue. And 
I, I really don't get this. And I said, well, the actor just saying, I am fucking pissed. Right. That's all you're saying. I all am right. fucking pissed. You can condense pissed. it for them. Like condense that. it for yeah. them. And get to the meat of what you're, you're really trying to say. Think about what your character is. I'm fucking pissed. Mm-hmm. Well, kids will say, well, not I'm fucking pissed, but they will say, <laughs> this doesn't make sense, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's straightforward. The, yeah. It's not a, you know... Um, uh, dialogue that's built up with the uh, 25-cent words. You don't need yeah. that. Mm. It's funny. Right. So I, I was a session musician for many, many years. When you look at me and go, I want you to play it like this or I want you to play it like that, no problem. Mm-hmm. When you look at me and go, what do you think? Right? No problem. I'll play it. When you go, what do you think? And I do it. Then you go, yeah, but like that, but just a little more Rolling Stones. Right? That's where it's always tough. I mean, that's for me yeah. anyway. I mean, different people. It's, <laughs> do you want it to be real or do you not want it to be real? If you want it to be real but not quite real, you know, that's the thing. I can see someone coming. How does a kid come in and deliver it? And you're like, yeah, but just a little more. Yeah, but just a little more. Man, that must be a, a, a quite a day. I mean, it must be an interesting day to watch. Well, you know, if, if we have an older kid, let's say we have a 16, 17, 18-year-old kid that's playing yeah. a 14 we're changing this to, to be a little bit older, um, uh, they do have, uh, you know, there's a lot, I, I'm trying to think of Malick's film, uh, Tree of Life. Yeah. Mm, yeah. There was a great kid actor in there. It was just phenomenal. I can't think of his name right now. But, there's a lot of actors out there, kids that grew up as five and six and seven year old kids that have been in training mm-hmm. and have got a lot of meat under them. They don't know that emotion to draw up like Malkovich would do, but they've got a lot of characters around them that help them. So it the seems solution- so far this character works really well in mid teens rather than younger because it gives them almost a. a if it's a little kid, then the parent has a responsibility, has less responsibility as the kid gets older, and they have more chance to interact well, or seem as a as a unit. In, in yeah, here, here's here's the the gray area for you. It's much more dynamic. Now think about this. You know where it's going. Mm-hmm. You know that Corey just goes ooh, and he slicks back his hair, he gets it all puffed yeah, up, gives buys a white suit, and he starts making so much money. He buys a new truck. Gets a new <laughs> yeah. tan, does he's all doing that. He's like a Jerry Lee Lewis thing, you know, yeah. like he's like just sort of owning like the rock star part of it. Well, right? he's going there, but think about Act Three. Act Three has to be that big struggle between Corey and, and the son, Stephen. Mm-hmm. And if Stephen's younger, let's say 12 years old, it's a dad, dad, dad pulls him back to reality. Yeah. But if he's 18 years old, it's not so strong. Yeah, no, but yeah, if he's right, 15, right. So there's thing, 15 or 14. 14 or 15, but still, but 12 would be the best. Yeah. 18 is the worst. Because a number of years have to go, because a year has to go by. Yeah. How, 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 how long is the arc? Not just, a, just a year. About a year. Six yeah, months. Right, right. The summer. The right. summer. That's it. Okay, Three so but you can give you can give younger kid qualities to that teenager. I'm not talking about the qualities. I'm talking about dynamic strain that the audience feels. They would feel so much more. This father son redemption. That's the heart. I mean, if you had no, to say, I, I what see this, what you're saying. Yeah, if it's a little kid, the thing about a young a youth is not just innocence, but also the ability to see the truth and well, look the ability at, to see the truth and the strength to bring your father back. Well, because no, because the truth. Yeah. There's no reason not to believe. 
that the truth is just the truth. You know, later on, a little cynical. It's like, hey, whatever. If you want to fucking do yeah. that, you know, whatever, I'll buy that. You know, they sort of become a criminal too. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I can see. Well, that makes yeah. it uh, where he says, uh, you know, I can't do this without you. I need you. Now that takes on a real different meaning depending mm-hmm. on the age of the kid. Mm-hmm. If you're saying that to a six-year-old. That tells you a lot about that guy as opposed to saying it to a 12-year-old or to an 18-year-old. That's yeah, but that preteen, I can see. 18 I, is just I don't another man, basically. Yeah. But that preteen thing, they're old enough to be able to, you know, they're old enough to be able to... Straight on through. You know. Straight on through to the other side. <laughs> wow. Be you surprised if you can't join a, a Doors reference there. I did. The week that Ray and Eric died. Oh, yeah, that was Yeah, sad. man. Oh. The first guy that threw the bass player out of the fucking band, you know, man? He was like, I'm going to play bass with my left hand. Keyboard, you, yeah. you know what's nice about that? Look, I, I love bass players, so it's not that. That sucked that there was no bass player. But the thing that was nice about it is uh, I played a, a wedding gig for 15 years, when uh, 14 and a half years, where I played bass on my left hand and piano on your right hand, mm-hmm. or organ on the right hand, and wore a damn plastic tuxedo. But um, <laughs> but I love my children, and that's why I did it. That's right. Um, it means that if the drummer and you are playing, you can play anything. You can take it anywhere you want. Yeah. You talk about that so that's why I'm bringing it up and said. What you asked before, how do you do this? How do you stay in control? Total control for extreme. I own the harmony and the the direction. Mm-hmm. And so I was very lucky to play with a really good friend who played saxophone over the top. Oh. And we would just go anywhere. Because you're at a <laughs> wedding. And we, you play some really amazing weddings where most of the people were not into being at a wedding. So you pull out a Weezer song or something <laughs> in the middle of, you know, burn, air, 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 air. Yeah, man. So, yeah, guy's dead. Rayman's there, gone. Yeah, the oh, Doors uh, keyboardist. But, yeah, the, the drums start, and he just owned the whole the whole thing, the harmony. <laughs> yeah, the guitar player plays some riffs and give it a... You know, Jim Morrison, call it a day. You know? Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to wrap this up because everybody has better things to do than continue this. And uh, we'll come back. Some of us have real Some jobs. <laughs> Some of us just live here and hope for people to come over and visit. Right. Now that I know where you live, I can make it here. Yeah. Now, uh, going back, I came down 1A. Is it better to go Sagamore? Going back? Uh, so you guys I live right off Sagamore. Uh, Still recording. Road. <laughs> <laughs> Road. Yeah, that's right. Yes. It's All better right. to take Bracket Road. That after you go through the circle, the first right comes right out there. I have no clue. What <laughs> okay. Are you, are you leaving? We'll or you can follow up. me out here. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, next bracket, week right? we shall come back to the tent. I'd like to thank uh, Chase Bailey for... Do I want to indulge two podcasts in a row with the tent? Oh, I would. Sure. Uh, we well, we started it. Yeah, I want to know what happens. <laughs> you can finish. I'm not going on your lame synopsis. They all what happens to the girl? Does the girl come back? Mom's got to play a role here somewhere, or not? I got the lead role. I'm not giving that up easy. Every, I'm the kid. Everybody's everybody dies in the end scene with the burning inferno. Wow, jeez. The capsizing cruise ship. <laughs> I mean, the space. See, now this really does. Oh, spoiler alert. Oh, right. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like Hamlet. Everybody. My favorite answer would have been, well, it depends on the director. <laughs> oh, what did you say? This is this little chaos theory. Like, we have 
14 different endings. Exactly right. It's the Casablanca method. Even the actors don't know what the hell they're I love the idea because you're playing with, because obviously you're playing with all of the things that his problems are. Or all the things he's preaching about. So, yeah, well, I didn't read the book. I don't know the snobs. Yeah, I want to know what happens. Well, the, the book is a novelette, uh, about a 100-page novelette that was written by Gary Paulson. And Gary Paulson is world famous for writing teenage sure. teen, teen books. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, Big-time author. So we're uh, we're signing off. Thanks to uh, Dylan Collins, Chase Bailey, Duncan Watt, and myself, Dennis Johnson. I always like to thank myself because, you know, what the hell? Nobody else will. And nobody else will, so I might as well. So uh, we'll see you You're all next time on the Table Read Podcasts. Bye.